You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. The reason why I look the way I do is because I don't like the quote-unquote Brooke Shields look. I don't like the everyday all-American girl. Okay, because I'm not... Another State of Mind is the true story of a group of young musicians who took off in a broken-down school bus for an incredible 10,000-mile journey through the underground. From Seattle to Saskatoon, from Winnipeg to Washington, D.C., they learned all about the people and the places that make up the new punk subculture. And in the process, they learned a lot about themselves. Some people call it slamming, and some people call it pogoing, and some call it the skang. But uh, I just call it dancing, because that's normally what you're doing. That's why I did my hair this way, and that's why I drew my face this way, because out of the misery, I felt like, like death. And, and I, that's probably closest to what I look like, is death. One of the finest rock and roll films overall. Funny, tragic, and audacious, but always riveting entertainment. The Daily News. A fascinating panoramic view of the punk subculture, the Los Angeles Times. Another state of mind is professional, engaging, and funny, LA Weekly. Another state of mind featuring youth brigade, social distortion, minor threat, and an incredible 10,000 mile, 25 city adventure. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Eric Peterson. Hello, everybody. On this special episode, we are looking at the 1984 documentary from Adam Small and Peter Stewart, Another State of Mind. The film documents an international tour by two West Coast punk bands, Youth Brigade and Social Distortion, capturing the attitudes, ethos, and lifestyles of the time. So, Eric, when was the first time you saw Another State of Mind, and what did you think? I saw it in the late 90s, probably 97 or 98. I had some uh, friends who were in a punk rock band called Mazinga, who are maybe only notice, notable to the mainstream that their drummer went on to become the drummer of the band, the Von Bondies. And uh, they had a punk house called Scorpio McSatan's Kung Fu Lounge. And I started hanging out with them, and my brother and I eventually put out a couple of their records on our label. And one of the things that was going on at that time was a lot of – Early punk rock stuff was getting reissued on compact disc, and a lot of early punk rock films were getting released on VHS. And one of the guys at the house had Another State of Mind on VHS, and we sat down and watched it. It's kind of hard to remember exactly what I thought. I think I enjoyed it. I was kind of just dipping my toe into social distortion at the time, 
Uh, as far as their older material, I was at that point familiar with their newer material, which I, I thought was pretty good. But I'm one of those uh, weirdos that likes to go back and hear the first record and then the, the one that nobody likes. And then the, uh, the one that's got the sellout big hit. And then the one after that when they don't know what they're doing. I did go back and listen to a lot of Social Distortion. And watching the documentary at the time, and maybe part of it was that it was you know, 15 years after the fact instead of almost 25 years after the fact or wherever we are now, that it struck me as that this is interesting. I was not as conversant in uh, a lot of the punk subculture as I am now. And so a lot of it just kind of washed over me. But I, I think that it was uh, something that I took in. and was like, yes, I want to see more like this. How about you, Heather? I had heard about the film for years. The first time I saw it was probably... I'd say like four or five years ago, and my um, my husband found his VHS copy of it because we've been talking about it. I was like, "Yeah, I've never seen that. And I've always wanted to see it." Um, as someone who's you know basically been a fan of old school uh, punk as as well as documentaries for a long time. Um, however, the time he picked it was like after one in the morning, and I probably might have been inebriated. <laughs> so my memory of it, my initial viewing of it is super hazy. Revisiting it, though, uh, in preparation for this episode, I loved it. I thought it was really, thought it was really good. And it actually was kind of nice to see, uh, you know, because I think at this day and age, it's, it's easy to kind of forget documentaries, especially music ones where you're getting kind of an equal eye view with the musicians. And it's not just sort of nostalgia, coded with certain like outside agendas. I mean, there, there's obviously some agendas probably in all documentaries and this one not, you know, excluded, but, uh, but I thought it was great. And it was, it was definitely a trip to see Mike Ness look like a baby, you know, cause of course I was familiar with social distortion. I thought it was incredible. I'd, I'd easily put it in my top like 10 music documentaries. I feel like such a crusty old punk compared to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I used to watch this on Night Flight when they would show it and really enjoyed this documentary. And I was not familiar with Social Distortion until I saw it. And then when they came back out with, uh, I guess it was their self-titled third album and they were doing, you know, Ball and Chain and all that stuff. I was just like, oh yeah, I know these guys. And what happened to that lead singer? He's like super buff now. And he looks like he could kick my ass where it looks like I could really kick Mike Ness's ass from like 1982, 83. He was just a super skinny, this little guy and with the big spiked hair and the eyeliner and stuff. It's just like, okay, wow. What a difference, uh, you know, just a few years makes. And I guess a lot of rehab in between. Cause I think they broke up shortly after that first album and then came back together, did prison bound and then came back together again and did the social D. And then I kind of lost track of them after that. They had that, like you were saying, Eric, that third album was just a huge hit for them. And I was just like, yeah, okay. I'm kind of done with social distortion. I'll go back to mommy's little monster and just enjoy that. Social D, I think, is another one of those bands that, while not every one of their records is a masterpiece, I, I think every record has at least one or two tracks on it that are worth hearing, if not uh, really good. So, I agree. They are a very solid band, and I personally really like that third album. I don't know. I think it was just like between kind of getting turned off of music around mid-90s 
and then also like some of the people that were glomming on to social distortion, where it's like, oh yeah, these are not the people that would appreciate them from another state of mind. Yeah, because it kind of became almost like jock rock. It was like the harder, harder stuff. Like you know, you're you're not in the mood for Dave Matthews Band or Counting Crows. You want something a little bit harder. So maybe we'll put on Social Distortion. The joke is that rockabilly is the punk rock retirement plan, and Social Distortion <laughs> is that step between punk rock and rockabilly. I can see that completely. I think we need to form a band called Punk Rock Retirement Plan. Or at least, at least have an album called that. That's that's perfect. Yeah. No, that is kind of one of the cool things about seeing, like, this band and kind of... It's not even a true infancy because, you know, they formed, like, in 78. And one thing I didn't realize until kind of researching this, and I should have known this because I'm a big fan of the man, is that at one point Rick Agnew, who had later grown to be in the adolescence and Christian Death, and he's an amazing guitarist, was in Social D, right? But definitely an early stage, you know, the band. I mean, you, you would not have guessed watching this film that, you know, that they would take off the way they did. And I mean, I feel I feel like as far as like punk rock patches and T-shirts, the, the only band you'll see more of is probably like the Misfits. Those were the two old school school punk bands that were hot topic on the walls everywhere mm-hmm. on hot topic. And, you know, for what it's worth, I'm glad that kids got to hear both of those bands or get the names of both of those bands in their heads to check out. With the Misfits, I mean, I've never ventured into their music just because their fans from the time and from years earlier were just the biggest fucking assholes, man. I could not stand anybody who was wearing a Misfits patch on the back of their leather jacket. It was like, fuck this guy. It was like they were the ones who were just at shows to get into the mosh pit and just beat the shit out of people. And it was just like, fuck all of you people. I cannot stand you. So the Misfits might be some of the greatest music in the entire world, but it's just, I can't get past the fans man it is really tough i understand that it's it's they have some of the greatest music and some of the worst music to be honest quick side note uh i went to ninth grade in 1986 at punk rock high school usa and i was you know into cheap trick and i was one of these weird dungeons and dragons kids who really i was into punk rock but not the punk rock that everybody else was into my favorite band was a group called legal weapon that's still one of my favorite bands um Anyway, my high school, there was probably about 12 guys that had devil locks, and they were all wearing the Crimson Ghost and PIL t-shirts. And like I said, I went to Punk Rock High School USA, so this was not your standard issue Jocko Homo High School. And I just my, – my abiding memory was, man, that haircut looks uncomfortable. I don't like having hair in my face. But it, it, years and years later, when I really got into horror punk, my brother was like, okay, you got to listen to The Misfits. And I did, and I was like – Okay, I get it now. Yes, I can see how the fans ruin it. Unfortunately, there's a number of bands whose fans will just ruin it for you. Yeah, I mean, Rush might be good, but thanks, Doug Childs. I won't listen to them. Oh, no. I love Rush, if that helps. Like, <laughs> Which... If that, if that helps get through your pain, Mike. Yeah, yeah. It took me so many years to finally get into the Smiths just because I couldn't stand those people so much. I'm still not on board with that one, so... But hey, that's okay. We could do a whole other episode of, like, sometimes fans being the worst thing about an artist. The fans that ruin it the most for me, and this would be the most Nazi fans, in my opinion, the Beatles. 
I, I can't do the Beatles. I just can't. A lifetime of boomers telling me, you'll never hear anything as good as the Beatles, man. Luckily, I slid into the Beatles when I was still like, you know, preteen kind of thing. So it was okay. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't begrudge anybody. I just am like not on that train at all. I'm over here with my animals and my trogs records. Thank you very much. Yep. Oh, that's fantastic. That's I, I once had a baby boomer <laughs> try try to school me when I was in college because he he overheard me. He wasn't even part of the conversation. He overheard me at a coffee shop telling a friend that I hated Eric Clapton. And I thought he was overrated. And the guy was like, oh, how could you say that about Eric Clapton? I said, because it's true. <laughs> right. Seriously, he was the weak link in cream. And I fucking stand by that. So I can't say I was that familiar with Youth Brigade until I watched this movie. And then I never really got into them after this one. I had heard the name because in that same era when I first saw the film, that's, as I said, a lot of punk rock stuff was getting reissued on compact disc. Uh, all the UK stuff, not all of it. A lot of it was coming out on Captain Oi Records. And in the US, uh, Time Bomb Records, who actually released this VHS of uh, Another State of Mind, they were starting to do a bunch of reissues. And Frontier Records, which was a label that had been around, was doing reissues. And I think Triple X Records out of uh, California, who's probably most famous for having L7 and the pre-Jane's uh, Addiction band Psycom on the label, they were also doing some reissues. So this stuff was becoming available, and I started getting compilations. So I'd hear a little bit of Youth Brigade here and there, and maybe they had a great single or two or you know, a 7-inch, but there was never enough there for me to really glom onto it. I do like this whole thing, and, and so many punks would do this, where it's just like, okay – we are not just a band. We are an organization. And the whole like ideals that the Stern brothers, the guys behind Youth Brigade were like, or at least Sean Stern, the leader of the band was just like, Hey, we are not just a band. We are, are the better youth organization. And we are going to do this whole thing and basically be like these ambassadors of punk and have like this whole business model and like not only did you, were you expected to be in a band, but so many of the bands were like, and not only are we a band, but we're also a label and we're going to put out other people and half the time we're going to fuck people over and the other half the time maybe we'll be actually like decent human beings and actually stand by what we do. I'm not saying that BYO fucked anybody over. I'm just saying like so many people that were like, we're going to form a label. And then it's just like, hey, we can steal from people. This is fantastic. There was a lot of that that went on because you look at something like SST Records, which also had a lot of people that had the, that kind of ethos of, you know, this is a tour. You look at, you know, the Minutemen especially. They had a whole kind of ethos behind what they were doing. Same thing with Black Flag. You know, no one can have day jobs. This is our job. You know, we have to tour because we have to tour because nobody's going to let us in the door of MTV or radio. So I think there's something about the West Coast, which is – Maybe a little ironic because there's so many large record labels there, and they were just holding the doors shut against punk rock. Somebody wants to make a documentary about punk rock, the one <laughs> I want to see. I want one about NBC's war against punk, and I want one against the LAPD's war against punk, and I want one about how the labels completely missed the boat on punk out there. Gosh, that sounds like it could be a really good documentary or a series of documentaries. Maybe like, maybe like a whole series of, of like maybe hour long things that you put together and speak to like the actual people that were there. And maybe like Epics runs it or something. Somebody <laughs> cool, you know? Or you could just like slap a bunch of shit together and not know what the fuck you're talking about and do that instead. 
punk rock was more about having fun. It was just about that explosion of heart and mind. When in doubt, build it myself. It's like if you get into punk rock to make money, you're really in the wrong business. You know, guys going crazy. Oh, the shade of it all. I would watch all of those, too. You know, what's fascinating, though, is that this is an aspect of punk. I'm so glad you both brought this up. That is featured really well in this film, but it's one that's not brought up a lot, especially in newer, I'd say, like books or documentaries, is that there was a, there was kind of that spirit, almost this sort of like like proletariat spirit with art through punk. Like, you know, in England, you had like crass. You know, I think, it, you know, and oh, yeah, of course, East Coast, you've got Ian McKay. And, you know, obviously, you guys mentioned the West Coast. But I think that's the thing is that, um, you know, that that was kind of the inspirational thing with punk is that it gave people, especially if they were politically motivated, and not all punks were, and that's fine, too. But a, a sense of like, okay, this isn't your religious leader talking, or your parents talking, or your mayor, or president, whoever, like, these are your peers, these are your equals, you know, and, um, and I love that. I think, you know, I, I admired Stern's, uh, you know, good intentions with that. I mean, I think he came across better than say somebody like Greg Ginn would have speaking of SST. It's in addition to being political, you know, they talked a little bit uh, about the then current administration and boy, did the things they say ring true for today, which is kind of scary, but Social political talking about kids that were coming from broken homes that had addiction problems that had medical issues that were homeless that were probably there was a, there was I know in the LA punk scene there was a large contingent of Hispanics who weren't accepted in society and a large contingent of LBGTQ persons who were uh, obviously discriminated against and a lot of the punk rock songs from that scene that last today and that echo today really are the ones that we're talking more about the social issues rather than fuck Reagan or, you know, um, Jerry Brown's an idiot or whatever. You know, they were, those songs are funny to listen to, you know, 30 years later, but the ones talking about kids that are being abused, you're like, that's still happening today. And a 15 year old going through a hard situation at home can relate to that. It's funny you bring that up because I was actually recently trying to collect a bunch of fuck Reagan songs and it's just, <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, there was one guy who put together a whole radio show of just like going through all of his punk rock albums and putting out like, oh yeah, here's this whole like two hour block of fuck Reagan songs. And then I went through and I was like, oh, well, you forgot about this, this and this and like adding to that, like he had such a great core and I'm just like, oh yeah, and there's like probably 10 more songs. And I like, look at all this stuff. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, this is great as well. So it's like so many because I keep I keep saying to myself, it's like, where's all the fuck Trump songs? You know, it's like fuck Reagan was like a, a sub genre within punk itself. You know, like almost every one album for sure had at least one fuck Reagan song on it. It was just like, okay, you didn't have to be Jello Biafra to hate fucking uh, Reagan in the day. So it's like, where is it? You know, where, where's the song about Nancy? Where's the song about this or that? Yeah. I'm on a model, Reagan, I didn't know the college, I ain't 
These guys, like, they are definitely not the minority. I find it very interesting when we get, like, the one black guy who's on the tour. Um, but we don't get, like, if there are any people that are, like, uh, bisexual, homosexual, anything, they are not out. Um, and so it's just like, okay, everybody feels, everybody except for one dude feels like they're all kind of cut from a very similar cloth. This is also the second way. I'm sorry, the second wave of uh, West Coast punk. This is the the more um, aggro teenager era of these kids were gro- growing up with X and Black Flag and Zeros and Alice Bag for mentioning a couple of the uh, the Hispanic people involved in in the scene and quite frankly some of the LBGTQ people. Uh, they had already paved the path for. Uh, venues and places that a lot of these these up and coming bands could play, and of this second wave, maybe the most famous, uh, arguably maybe TSOL, out of out of the LA scene at least, maybe the adolescents are right there. Uh, in goth circles, people know Christian Death and Forty Five Grave, but the uh, you know the social distortion, which you're right, had been around, but like the misfits they had an earlier incarnation and they had a later incarnation that were sonically different and had different members in the band and were you know younger people you know you look at a band like fear those guys you know were rumored to be vietnam era vets which means they were probably mid 30s when uh this stuff was going going on in the 80s so i i think that 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 also is part of what's going on is a lot of suburban kids from orange county as opposed to the the artistic kids that would form that first wave of punk rock. And, and if you look at both uh, England and, and in the UK and you look at New York, you'll find the same kind of thing where the, the second wave became much more of the suburban presence who latched onto what the first wave was doing and oftentimes made it uh, harder and more aggro and sometimes farther to the right, sometimes farther to the left, like crass. That's kind of how, how these things go. You get – you get the initial kind of arty, whatever, whatever you know, what, whatever's cool, man, kind of, kind of scenes, and then from that, people extract a few little things, and that becomes generally the second wave. By I think mid '80s, to me, like punk, it became a lot more bro. It's like the bro wave, and I, I hate saying that because there are bands of this era that I love, including Social Distortion. And I mean, like we see Keith Morris in this documentary. I'm a huge Keith Morris fan. I love the Circle Jerks. I just love Keith Morris in general. I think he's amazing. But I mean, you could look at the audience you see in this film versus say the audiences in Decline of Western Civ, which even at the time, by that time was filled, you're already getting a little bit of what was to come in that. But, um, or even like say something like the crowd in Urga Music War, which was kind of a mix of punk and post-punk and even like the odd reggae band and shit. <laughs> like, you know, you see a crowd that is diverse. There's a lot of women. There's a lot of minorities. They do talk to a few women in this, but one of them says she was the only girl in the mosh pit and then she got her leg broke you know this it it wasn't a safe environment for a lot of women which i think is a shame and i think honestly that attitude is very anti-punk 
personally, because punk was supposed to be for everybody. It's supposed to be DIY, but um, but there's still obviously some good people and some gems which we see in this film. The one girl who says, "Oh yeah, when you're mosh pit and you fall down, they'll pick you up. They'll make sure you're okay." I'm like, "Where are you moshing? Who the fuck? What? <laughs> I've never seen that before." No shit. She was moshing at the new Christy Menstrual's place. She was not moshing at a park. Like, <laughs> like that's a. <laughs> I have seen that though. I have seen I have seen the crowd pick people up, and I've actually somebody took my brother's glasses and returned them to him. Oh, so that's sweet. <laughs> that's nice that's, there's hope yet <laughs> another Mazinga story they uh, they went to California to play a couple shows that all fell through but they wound up opening for the business which is an oi band at uh, the Whiskey A Go-Go or something they just tripped into the show and they, they had came back and they told us the story that so they played and then the business went on to play and they, the club had issued pink wristbands and uh, the guy from the business said what is this this and I'm not going to say the expletive, but homosexual night. And the crowd, the California punks were like, ooh, that's not cool, man. So by, you know, by the, the late 90s, you know, a lot of this stuff had in some ways evolved. And the crowds maybe were like, yeah, we're going to pick up that girl that got hit in the, or knocked over. Or the kid the kid with the wheelchair. I've seen a kid with a wheelchair in, in the, uh, the pit. And everybody just makes sure they're okay and lets them participate, but not like – getting ultra aggressive with around them or near them. It's very interesting to see. I mean, this movie, the whole tour is, it's kind of the wallpaper. It's the backdrop for so many interesting conversations that we can have about this. I mean, we haven't really even started talking about the movie at all, but just the whole idea of, so we, we get the tour happening, but then it is the conversations outside of the club, the conversations after the show, before the show that really put a finer point on so much of this stuff. And the, I mean, just things like feeling like such an outsider and how many discussions do we have in this documentary about hair and how many scenes do we have of hair preparation? I mean, just think of fucking Mike Brinson with his hair coloring that goes throughout this entire movie. We've got the scenes of Sean Stern getting his head shaved to get ready for the tour. The whole discussion of uh, Mike Ness with his hair and all this and his eye makeup and stuff. And there's just so many discussions about hair and how that is such an identifying thing. And so much of this movie is talking about identity and feeling like a, an outsider. And it's interesting, all of these man on the street interviews that they have these talking head interviews that they have they're just focusing on this whole idea of belonging or not belonging and trying to find a place in the world where you feel comfortable and punk is able to offer that to so many of these people hair was was maybe one of the biggest biggest signifiers of what group you belong to definitely you know your clothes said something about the clique that you were in. But let's say you went to a school that required uniforms or you lived in an area where everybody wore basically the same the same color palette and the same style of clothes because of economic reasons or weather conditions. Your hair is the one thing that you could make really stand out. And hair also can be very uh, triggering maybe for some people. Having a shaved head or being bald or having a mohawk or – having your hair colored, which I, I know for probably a lot of people under the age of, let's say, 30, probably like, what's the big deal? But there was a time in especially America where 
the uh, you know having having a slightly strange haircut could in fact send you to the emergency room or get you fired from your job. I mean, I had a friend who interviewed for a job. She came in and her hair had changed color between the interview and the job. And they just sent her home. They're like, no, you don't you don't need to have this job. The one time I was going to dye my hair, I had gotten a job and the rules were your hair can't be dyed any unnatural color. And I was okay with it because I understood coming in that the, that was the that those were conditions of the job. And I decided that, hey, it's probably more important that I have a paycheck than, you know, fire engine red hair. So I was okay with it. But yeah, a, a lot of places would be like, nope. Or you would get followed in a store or you would get stopped by the police or – any number of, of things that, uh, you know, it's not supposed to happen to, uh, you know, suburban white kids. I'm curious what you guys thought about this. One thing I loved about this film a lot is that you don't just get a peek from the musicians, but also, I mean, you guys mentioned they talk to kind of people like some of just the kids of the scene, but also they talk to the road crew. And they, there's not that many music documentaries. Nobody ever really, people kind of take road crew people, I think, for granted, because it's not as glamorous. It's the grunt work. But, I mean, obviously there's no show without your road crew. That was one of the things that I like about punk and the the ethos of punk is that so many people were treated equally, or at least that's my perception of it. And it's like, you know, we got to hear i mean mike brinson is a roadie and he's like the rock star roadie he's like one of the major figures of this the the black guy marlin um you know he's plays a prominent part in this i mean even like they never really mention what monk does but then i'm reading up and it's like it sounds like maybe he's the manager of the band though hearing from mike ness he's just like yeah i don't know if he was the manager or not (laughs) doesn't sound like there's any love loss between those guys but uh yeah it's just uh, that's the 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 thing like uh, events that i still go to now where it's like there's like such a thin line between the people who are on stage and the people who are in the crowd. And those are the best kind of events for me. And that's what it like the whole idea of punk feels like to me is like, Hey, we're just the ones with the instruments, you know? And like, I know some people have problems with like stage diving and stuff, but it was kind of like a way to break that barrier of we are almost equal to you guys. We can come up on stage and we'll jump off right away, but we are right there with you. Well, I think that was that was part of the whole thing with the no rock star bullshit mentality of, you know, putting the the band, you know, not like six feet above the audience, being right in the audience's face. There's a scene where the guitar player goes out into the audience. I mean, that's that's very much uh, a uh, you know a, a, having a personal connection with your audience. Now, I, I've, I've, I've seen that in real life. I've seen guitar players go out into the audience. I've also seen acoustic players go out into the audience and kind of interact with people. And it kind of humanizes the experience. So rather than just being a spectator, you're, you're interacting with the artist. And they are interacting with you. And the, in a good show, the audience and the artist's energy will feed off of each other. And sometimes when you think about some of these big arena shows or – Big spectacle shows. I, I don't know that you're going to get that. You know, as much as I love Alice Cooper, I don't feel like there's ever going to be a personal connection. And maybe that's why he puts on a show. But you know, if you're going to go see the Rolling Stones, you're not going to you know necessarily make eye contact with you know Keith Richards and get a nod from him even. But if you go to see you know The Damned or TSOL or you know Social D, and back in this era especially. 
you know, you probably get to chat with them at the, you know, after the show and uh, that might be out in the audience right when they're, they're doing their set. So one of my favorite scenes like of, of music in this film, and it's kind of more towards the latter half, but like they have a gig where literally like they get the mic taken away from them. And so, but because the crowd there, because it's a small crowd, know, know the songs, it's like, it's just like this, everybody's just singing together. Like, I, I mean, you don't really get much more equal to that, where, you know, the lead singer and the crowd are together, literally. Everybody's singing along. And yeah, I mean, I can't think of any of, you know, that many artists that you could do that with, and especially on a bigger level. I mean, you get a lot of, a lot more egos, a lot more diva <laughs> kind of attitude you know like say like axel rose or somebody like that so um you know that was sweet you get to see kind of the sweetness of the punk scene which i like i was so much that guy from the san francisco show who was outside ranting about 21 and over <laughs> <laughs> i have had that rant before because i had tried to go to shows down at St. Andrews that were 21 and over when I was 18, 19, 20 years old. And I'm just like, what the fuck are you doing? This should be an all age show, you know, not realizing how much money the club makes on alcohol. If, if it's a 21 and over, but it's just like, come on guys, what are you doing? You're eliminating your fan base. You know, kids want to hear this music. So it's so funny here in 1982 or 83, when they're shooting this, the guy saying the exact same things. And man, he is intense. I love how intense that guy is the cramps come through here and they play a bar 21 and over they ultimately eliminate three quarters of their audience by playing a 21 a bar what the hell are they gonna play a bar for who can go see them their fans can't fucking go see them what's interesting is that if you look back to 15 years earlier say 1967 there were teen clubs all over america and a lot of what we think of now as the garage bands, which in many ways were the precursors to the punks, sonically and as far as the do-it-yourself ethos goes, you know, a lot of those bands got to play because there were teen clubs where kids could go and dance and hear a band and alcohol wasn't necessarily served or the drinking age was 18 at a certain point. So, uh, you know, these clubs were able to let in, you know, 18-year-olds, 20-year-olds. But I, you know, I definitely remember trying to go to shows in the 90s before I was 21 and getting the big X on your hand and kind of feeling like, yeah, okay, this is this is what's going on. And the truth is, the lack of all ages venues uh, is probably even worse today than it was then. You start doing that stuff and next thing you know, you're going to get over the edge. We're going to start burning down the place. Yes, to some cheap (laughs) trick. My theory about Over the Edge is it's the uh, if Rock and Roll High School is the comedic version of that late 70s punk blowing up the high school, that uh, Over the Edge is the serious one. And interestingly enough, the band that's featured most prominently in Over the Edge is Cheap Trick. They were originally supposed to be the band featured in Rock and Roll High School. Another peek we get into this film that is definitely into the nitty gritty life of a working musician and in a tale as old as time is we see the band consistently, both bands get ripped off. I always loved hearing like the story about how like Chuck Berry, when he'd go to gigs, he'd bring a gun because he got tired of getting ripped off by, by promoters and club managers. So he just, he put, but obviously punk, you know, not everybody wants to bring firearms. And of course, everybody's a kid, too. So, you know, it's, 
you know, you don't foresee, you know, that, yeah, there's a lot of sharks in this in these waters. Well, I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to you're going to call the cops and they're going to be like, yeah, whatever. Maybe if you didn't look like this, you know, things would be OK. Or you got paid, you know, oh, he paid you five bucks. What do you care? He paid you in pennies. In pennies. Yeah. Which literally happens in the movie. For anybody who hasn't seen it, they paid with a roll of pennies. That is the most aggressive thing. I had a high school teacher that claimed that he was protesting the the uh, teachers' union because of some of their stances on Israel. So he went and paid his dues in pennies. Nice. Oh, my God. <laughs> there was one time my brother got a BS parking ticket for some nonsense. And so he went to the bank and was like, I need $100 in pennies. And they were like, we can't give you that. <laughs> but he he paid it in like ones and nickels or something, and he was kind of like, I don't. It's not really the fault of the cashier at the counter, but this is my my passive aggressive way of saying this is bullshit. How many times have you guys had the cops called on you? I have never had the cops called on me. I have been pulled over for driving a ten year old car in a nice neighborhood, and I've actually worked for a police department. So. Uh, I've never been a police officer. I have worked for the University of Michigan's Department of Public Safety in the 90s. My brother currently is uh, an employee of our local police department in the Community Standards Division. And previously, he was uh, in the University Community Standards Department. And I worked security for several years for our local library system. So I know a lot of the police officers in town. So I've never had the cops called on me. But I've been there when the cops were called at a party once or twice. And I knew the cops. And it was like, hey, Eric, how's it going? Time to leave. I was like, okay, sure. You know, I live in Ann Arbor where the cops are generally a, a cut above a lot of places. And, uh, you know, I've heard all kinds of crazy stories about the things that they have done that are great and the things they've done that aren't great. But I've never really had to deal with officers being called on me to go away. I've never had the cops call on me, thankfully. <laughs> I've been pulled over a few times. All but one were actually really, like, really cool. And it was like, you know, it was like, you have, a, like, a light out. You know, like, a headlight's gone out. And all the, you know, all the officers were super nice. There was one time, though, where, um, and this is when I had purple hair. And I was driving at night with uh, my husband, who at the time had long hair. And we got pulled over saying that we had, I had swerved into the other lane, which I had not. Um, I drive like a granny at night for the record. <laughs> and, uh, and the, and one of the cops actually called, uh, Chuck, my husband, ma'am, who, which if Chuck looks like a woman, then I look like fucking Burl Ives. Okay. <laughs> like, so, um, and I, I've grown up with the, like, yeah, with law enforcement, like I have family that were in law enforcement, and and basically, yeah, my my mom was like, yeah, you got profiled, which I mean, now that's not not to any degree that what you know, like minorities in this country have to go through, obviously, but you know, you live in the in the South, <laughs> it's a. Uh, but other than that, no, I mean, it's I mean, it's like anything, you know. There's good, there's bad. Yeah, nobody probably hates a bad cop more than a good cop. But yeah, what about you, Mike? Though. Uh, not that I remember. I just don't remember having many good experiences with cops. And I was just thinking about the time when they get the cops called on them in that uh, cafe in Montreal. And it was just like, yep, okay, this seems pretty de rigueur. You know, they seem 
like, okay, it's time to get out of here and just not being served at a place and having like these weird attitudes being thrown at them just because they look different. And they're probably pretty rude as well, but it's like, okay. I mean, when the one guy's like kind of slamming his coffee cup down, like I want more coffee. I'm like, yeah, no, you don't do that to a waitress. You don't, you just do not do that to a waitress, but I don't know. Maybe they were in the right, maybe they're in the wrong, but I was just like, okay, yeah, this feels like a familiar situation. This feels like Denny's on a Friday night. There's a difference between you're being a jerk and it's time for you to go and somebody being freaked out and calling the cops on you for over, you know, bullshit reasons. And both happen to people that are outside the norm or the uh, the group that controls the local society. So if you're if you're in some place where you're not one of the regulars or you're not one of the community, the opportunity for police and uh, you know i don't know what it was like in toronto or montreal in 82 but most cops i've met just don't want to deal with it they just want you to move along you know they're like i don't want to spend two hours writing a bullshit report and dealing with you running your mouth so you know either you can move it along or we'll move it along for you and uh you know unfortunately or unfortunately i've been on the side of getting people to move along more than i would like in my my uh former career and it's never fun. It's always like, dude, just move along. Just call it a day. And I can see a bunch of rude teenagers, but I've also been in cases where I'm like, oh, they're allowed to be here working at security in the library. Everyone complained about loud teenagers. I'm like, they're in the teen section. They're across the library from you. I will ask them to keep it down. But, you know, this we allow them to be loud in the teen section. That's what it's there for. So, you know, there's got to go both ways. So I can see three o'clock in the morning, the waitress being like, no, these guys are being jerks or whatever. But it does come off as they're being profiled for being punks and having weird haircuts. Well, and I think part of that's tied to kind of there's like themes of unity all throughout the film. And some of it's like a negative because basically, you know, as the bands tour different cities, whether it's Canada, you know, Baltimore, wherever there's always this theme of like yeah there's rednecks everywhere there are you know jocks there are bullies everywhere but the flip of that is like every time they go to there's like their kids that they connect with that are like them and that's and that's something that is really beautiful i know that was part of kind of the message of, of starting this movie is showing people yeah you know punk isn't just a bunch of people spitting and you know being insane like no there's you know there is like kind of almost like a like a substitute family aspect for it for, I think for a lot of these kids. I think it's also showing a lot of kids in an area where there's maybe three or four of them that, Hey, there might be three or four of you here, but there's three or four in every mid-sized city around the world or around, around North America. So you, you might feel very alone, but on a, on a local scale, maybe you are, but on a, a larger scale, you're not. And I also think this movie is really interesting because you know, by the mid '90s, having funny hair, having you know weird clothes—that was much more acceptable. And even today, I mean, people people who 30 years ago would have said, "Did you see her hair?" or "Did you see his hair?" Nowadays, it doesn't even phase them. You know, grandma's got pink hair and a tattoo, and it's not just you know the the grandma with the blue hair. It's grandma's got magenta purple hair straight out of an anime and a, and a tattoo, and nobody blinks. 
Well, yeah, God, the uh, prohibition against piercings and tattoos and all that kind of stuff. I'm in a meeting today with like the you know some of the directors at the company, and there's a guy who's got spacers in his ears. He's got tattoos all over his arms. And I'm just like, yeah, 20 years ago that would have been completely unacceptable, but now it's like, okay, yeah. People just do that. That's fine. You know, my modern tribalism and that kind of stuff, absolutely cool. No big deal. Yeah, about four weeks ago, I was at a book sale in Kalamazoo, which is west of Detroit. And uh, we were in the the bookshop for the library. And one of the older guys working the counter was whispering to the person next to him about somebody's tattoos. And I was kind of taken aback, mainly because it had been so long since I'd heard anybody complain about the tattoos were really small. They weren't like somebody had, you know, fuck you on their face or something. It was, you know, they had something on their arm or their hand and they were like, oh, what are they going to think when they're older? And I'm like, like, you need to get with it because, you know, a lot of 70 year olds are out there with tattoos. Don't you watch Ink Masters, dude? But speaking of kind of like a lot of the kids they meet, what did you guys think about the Montreal section in general? Because that one for me is kind of the one that stayed with me the most. It's depressing, to be honest, to me. I hope things have changed, but that was the scariest of the bunch. The rest of them seemed like oh, a lot of suburban type kids who were becoming uh, socially or politically aware, who were trying to do things to make a better world or a better, you know, better life for them and their friends or trying to understand what was going on around them. But those Montreal, uh, you know, street punks, they seemed kind of dangerous and messed up. And I mean, I didn't. I don't know if that's selection of the interview subjects, but I, I got to wonder that, hey, if they had run into punks in Montreal that were as maybe on the ball as some of the others, that they would have shown them. But the, these seemed like a lot of kids who had some real issues that needed to be dealt with. Yeah, because at least the kids in Calgary, it's like they've got a house, like they have a house in D.C. and they've got a a skate ramp, like they have a skate ramp in D.C. So it's like showing that, like you were saying, these disparate groups of punks all kind of are doing some of the same thing. But yeah, you get to Montreal and you hear Manon speaking and she's talking about living on the streets and uh, beating up homosexuals and stealing their money and all this kind of stuff. And I'm not sure if at the time of the recording, if she was, doesn't sound like she was necessarily doing that. Sounds like things were a little bit better, but between her and um, who is it? Uh, Marcel it's just like, Oh fuck. You know, these guys, I mean, and Marcel, that is one of the moments that just really stuck with me from so many years ago watching this again. And it's, it's almost difficult to watch. Yeah. It's it, that whole section is just so heartbreaking. And because he seems like his core where he's just, you know, this guy's just been messed with and messed up and fucked with so much. And he's like, I would never hurt anybody. People basically want to hurt me. And you know, and that's a side to where it's with with punk, and I think with any sort of outsider culture, is that there there are fringes where people just society just ignores people. And like with Menon, she actually reminded me a lot of I don't know if you guys ever seen the uh, documentary Streetwise that was made by I can't remember her husband's name. He directed it, but Mary Ellen Mark, the famous photographer, co-directed with her husband. And it's about street kids in Seattle in the eighties. And Menon kind of reminded me of some of those kids where these are kids. Like I mean, you have you know this girl that's thirteen or fourteen and she's a prostitute, and this is the reality that society you know 
just chose to ignore and chooses to probably continue ignore absolutely and i mean because like with man on i was trying for how old she was because she looks she's got a shaved head which kind of makes her look even more just sort of like fragile in this weird way and she's talking about how she'll find quote-unquote harmless people in a club and be like oh i'm hungry and they'll take care of me but then they try to have sex with her and she's like fuck off and i'm like who's trying to have sex with this girl like i don't think they're that harmless you know if they're trying to make it with an urchin that section shows the the swath of people that were involved in the various scenes because you get some you get some middle class kids you get some kids with ideals you get some 20 somethings with jobs but this is the darker side of punk and you know, a lot of us want to say, oh, there weren't all, you know, it wasn't all about violence and anger. And but for some people, it, it was, you know, there's always going to be I mean, even in the scene that I was around in, in the 90s, you know, there were a handful of people that were like, those guys are criminals. We don't want anything to do with them. You know, we're having fun with our cosmic comic book punk. We don't need these, you know, these, quite frankly, criminals, you know, invading our scene and causing problems. And I, I think that it's as important as it is to show people that have ideals and they're trying to make a better world and trying to to help kids understand that they're not alone that it is important to show that they're you know this isn't completely harmless that you do have to have uh, your guard up and i also think that the guy who was hit by the car that also shows that this was also a scene that you know people who were handicapped in various ways oftentimes found accessible where they were going to be uh, accepted and where they were going to be maybe even looked after because let's be honest in this era, you know, this was right before they started mainstreaming quote unquote, a lot of kids with down syndrome or mental retardation or severe handicaps into the public school system. So a a lot of young people never saw anybody whose handicap was much beyond, you know, maybe, maybe having some kind of being deformed in some way or missing a limb. And so those kids were a lot of times targets and they would find protection in the punk scene because the punks needed the numbers and they knew that they were outsiders and they saw how they had been treated and they saw how a lot of you know kids who were not part of the mainstream for whatever reason, they saw them being treated poorly as well and could empathize. And just from a filmmaking point of view, I mean, having this in the middle and then having Valerie more towards the end, who is another very damaged person and her talking about how her stepfather beats the shit out of her and how she is a cutter and wears her abuse on the outside. You know, I think it was very smart to have those particular moments be in those particular places because as I watch this movie now, it's like the filmmaking and film studies part of me kind of comes to the fore and just kind of being more aware of even like American geography. Cause I'm just like, why the fuck are you in Chicago before you're in New York? How do you go from Montreal to Chicago to New York? That makes absolutely no sense in terms of geography. <laughs> so what the fuck are you doing? I know that things are not the way that they seem. And then later on, you'll hear the interviews with the filmmakers. And it's just like, oh, yeah, this whole thing of Mike Ness writing Another State of Mind. Yeah, completely made up for the movie. It's like, oh, okay. So, And apparently, Heather, one of your friends just on Facebook, like five minutes before we got on, 
was talking about a uh, uh, youth brigade uh, documentary uh, or like a bonus thing that was on their 25th anniversary, whatever, and talking about the parts of the movie that are real and not real. And it's like, oh, okay. You know, it's like now knowing, you know, after watching so many documentaries, like what's stage and what's not, it's like, oh, that's kind of a bummer that this isn't as cinema verite as I wanted it to be. But, you know, it's a movie. From Jacko Petty to Spirus, man. They, they're all going to break your heart a little bit. Fucking Nanooka the North, man. <laughs> fucking Robert Flaherty staging all that shit with fucking Nanook, man. You Flaherty. Why? <laughs> Why did you stage it? I know. That's... It's, uh, I mean, to put together a film, I mean, yeah, it's kind of like if reality TV was truly reality, nobody'd watch it because it'd be like mostly people cooking, checking their phone. Like, you know, drama doesn't really happen at opportune moments. In fact, usually quite the opposite for a lot of us. So. I want the show that's just an hour of somebody sitting on their couch checking their phone. Yeah. Or actually, I don't need that. I can watch that at home. You just go, so. go anywhere in public and see, see people checking the phone. But uh, but no, it's funny because you mentioned Valerie. I thought she was kind of an interesting bookend, too. I felt like she, you know, looking at her and who knows, like, I don't know what happened to her. I She reminded me of friends I've had, like, where I'm just like, ultimately, yeah, she's had this really messed up upbringing, but... In the end, she's probably going to be okay, like, because she's found ways to cope with it. And, you know, she's kind of come out the other side, like, that's, and I think that's important to show, too, just so, you know, anybody, especially, like, a young person watching it being like, hey, just because you were, you were abused, that doesn't mean you're damaged goods. Watching her, especially, I was like, you know, it'd be really interesting for somebody to do a 40 years later documentary talking about where a lot of these people ended up, because... Honestly, some of them are dead, but a lot of them have wound up in some interesting places. And being 40 years older, going to have a more of a perspective on, you know, rewatching their youth. And I think there's a value in that to show uh, not only not only young people that, hey, this was me being a screwed up, you know, 18 year old. And, you know, as a as a 58-year-old, this is my life now, or this has been my life, that it also shows parents that just because your kid seems to be treading water or having issues at 18, you know, the, there are, you know, there are success stories out there that generationally can be followed, and you can see that, hey, this comes out the other end okay. Well, yeah, even just seeing, like, Mike Ness and how fucked up he is in this documentary and knowing that he was going to go to rehab just a few years after this, and it's like... Yeah, he totally turned shit around. I mean, listening to his audio commentary on the DVD, where he's just like, yeah, I don't remember a lot of this stuff. It's like, yeah, no fucking wonder you don't remember this, because you were fucking wasted through half of the filming of this stuff. You know, not not blaming this guy, because, yeah, he had issues. I mean, obviously, so many of the people in this movie had issues, and they're trying to work it out through their own way, and his was drink. And thank God he survived. Yeah, the one guy in the band who's like, I'm 38, you know, the big irony is he dies when he's 38 you know however many years later and it's just like oh fuck man this really sucks well there's survivors and there's people that don't survive and sometimes you can't tell who it's going to be sometimes you're like that's the guy who's going to be dead and you know no he's the guy who's the investment banker making you know five figures (laughs) yeah and and has dealt with their issues so have any of you seen the documentary the other f word i don't think so it's about punks and fatherhood. 
And it's a, it's, it's a lot about punks who, who have children now, and it talks about their experiences with their own fathers and how they are fathers. And it has people like – it's one of the guys from Pennywise that's, that was one of the main guys behind it. But it's got Flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers. It's got uh, one of the, the guy, I think, from, from Rancid. Uh, one of the guys from Black Flag. I think the Agnews are, are in it from the, the adolescents talking or no, it's the guys from red cross talking about being parents. And it's really affecting because in a lot of ways they're reflecting on their own damaged relationship with their, a lot of the times with their parents and their fathers and how they don't want that for their kids and growing up and not wanting their kids to make the same mistakes. Now, one of the things I had run across uh, between the time Mike asked me to be on this show and in now is a fairly recent interview with Mike Ness where he's talking about being a parent and looking at, you know, trying to keep his kids from falling into a lot of these pitfalls that he had. I mean, he's had so many rough times of it, but of course, you know, kids are going to do what they want to do and they're going to make mistakes. But I mean, he's actually like lived the life and he can probably you know show the actual scars for it. Well, one of the things I think a lot of these, these survivors learned was, not to be their parents and to be the what seems to be the the general thing I hear about parenting today is if you're in a bad situation, call us. We'll pick you up. No questions asked. There's not going to be any yelling or screaming. We just want you to be safe. Whereas in 1982, that wasn't necessarily the case. I thought that Keith Morris had been in way more documentaries. It seems like I just must have gone through a time there where like it felt like he was showing up everywhere. Whereas Ian McKay, I know he's been in like 40 some documentaries <laughs> and it's just like, there are certain people, you know, I, I, I make fun of folks on, on Facebook like you do. And it's just like, Hey, this documentary cannot be a documentary because you don't have John Waters or um, Lloyd Kaufman in it. You know, I'm sorry, but you have to have at least one of those guys in it. Well, having just rewatched the Damn documentary from 2017, Keith Morris is in that, and it strikes me that that he's as articulate or even more articulate today as he was when he was in this documentary. Maybe somebody needs to make a documentary supercut of like Keith Morris in documentaries through the years. Then you can watch like the evolution of his dreadlocks as well. We get we get baby Keith here, pre dreads. I mean, I really wouldn't have recognized him except for that voice. His voice is so distinct. The other thing that struck me is having just watched that damn documentary, that he's as on the ball and concise and consistent in his message then in 82 or 83, whenever he was filmed for this, as he is today. He seems to uh, to have the same ability, and maybe it's the ability, he has media savvy and has the ability to speak in the kind of sound clips and make points that wind up in documentaries, but you never feel like he's flaky. You never feel like he's just kind of rambling. He's got a point and it seems to be a consistent point of deconstructing the issues with American society, the American family, capitalism, and how punk rock plays into all of that. Well, I think the thing about Keith Morris too, unlike some other kind of talking heads, which I hate, I hate to use him as an example, because I'm not hating on the man. He's done stuff I love, but Henry Rollins. (laughs) Rollins is literally in what I would say 70% of documentaries now. When Keith Morris speaks, you feel like he's somebody who's talking to you. 
and talking with you, not talking at you, not giving you a cute soundbite that's clever. You know, you don't feel like he's reveling in the sound of his own voice. Like he's just, he always comes across very real and very genuine. And, um, and again, like, I mean, there are things Rollins, nobody come at me. There are things Rollins that I love, but I mean, you two kind of get the feeling that he's definitely, the man loves the sound of his own voice to some, to some degree. I would much rather at this point hear what Keith Morris has to say. Um, especially cause, you know, when he talks about the history of punk, he mentions bands that a lot of these documentaries neglect, whether it's the gun club, whether it's the screamers, whether it's the bags, you know, every, you know, I mean, I love all the big bands like Flag and X and The Clash and The Pistols. I love all of these bands. You know, I just recently watched a documentary series about punk, and I think there were only like 12 bands, maybe. I mean, I don't know who you guys are talking about, but there's just a few, like a handful of bands out there that I would consider punk. And the rest of them, I don't think these bands exist. Well, you do know that punk was invented by a couple of black kids from Detroit in 1974. A band called Death, and there's no doubt that they came up about on it all on their own. They weren't listening to the Stooges or the MC5, even though they were local bands. They weren't listening to the Rationals. They weren't listening to the Up. They created everything and put out one single, and everyone else stole from it, and nobody ever heard of them until that documentary came out. Well, and also, I think they were the only punk band. There was some band that was trying to pretend that they were black, uh, Bad Brains or something. Yeah. But those are totally white guys in blackface. And, you know, the, the Zeros, I mean, they were they were the Mexican Ramones, but not really. I mean, it, it, punk is all just a bunch of white kids, right? Yep. Okay, see, now you guys are going to get me going. So real quick, before we uh, before we go into to that, I wanted to read the numbers. Keith Morris has been, and, and some of these are bogus, some of them aren't, but Keith Morris on his IMDb, 27 credits as himself. Ian McKay, 44 credits as himself. Henry Rollins, 168 credits as Sweet himself. Lord. Well, admittedly, Rollins has done quite a bit of acting. Or well, is this, no, this as is himself? as himself, yeah. So okay, this is how many like, of those are like... Like Jimmy Kimmel Live. Or- exactly. There's a lot of it. Like, you know, fucking Joe Rogan and shit on here. But I'm just saying, like, it really, you know, they, I mean, the guy's narrating the Joe Bryant AD thing. Of course, he's in a band called Death. Uh, you know, th- just so many. So, so many. So how many, how many is Jello in? That's oh the other one God. I see. Oh, Yeah. Jello is, okay. I will have to look that up. I'm totally biased. I love Jello. <laughs> I love Jello as well. I love seeing that Jack Grisham has started popping up in a lot of stuff from TSOL. (laughs) Jello as himself in only 63 things. That is kind of crazy. Why why can't we have Jello Biafra in I Love the 80s? He was in so many of these same documentaries, so it's kind of funny. Yeah, he showed up in that punk rock documentary too can you tell how much i fucking hated that punk rock documentary he popped up up, all the good people pop up for like two seconds and that and that's the problem is that there's so many punk books that are completely you want to talk about people with like obvious agendas and i mean some of these books i actually like i like please kill me but it's structured in a way that you know, there's a little bit of an agenda. And there's a book called We Got the Neutron Bomb, which is an absolute shit show of a book. And I see, I, I like that book because they actually talk to people that didn't get spoken to in other things, like guys from the Dills and the Weirdos. I mean, they get some they get some uh, comments in Got the Neutron Bomb, 
But if you're talking L.A. punk, the best I've run across is Under the Big Black Sun by John Doe. And I haven't read it yet, but the brand new sequel just came out, More Fun in the New World, where they have people write a chapter and then they talk about a certain time period. So the first one has like like Elvez, who was in The Zeros, writing a chapter about his experience or Jane Wheelan from The Go-Go's. And if you get the audiobook, which was nominated for a Grammy, and rightfully so, each of the people uh, read their own chapters. No, and I, I just picked that book up, which I'm very excited about. But no, I mean, yeah, the, we got the Neutron Bomb. Yeah, they have that. But they also spend more time talking to guys making comment about Belinda Carlisle being fat and quoting Kim Fowley, which I actually have a huge soft spot for Kim Fowley. But there is a time and there is a place. And I'd much rather, if I'm reading a book about 70s punk, I'd much rather hear what Alice Bagg has to say about it than Kim Fowley, personally. And I say that as somebody who li- actually likes Kim Fowley. It's as sleazy and as terrible as he was, he owned it. <laughs> he did own it. There's a third one of those uh, oral histories that's give me something better. The uh, story of the Bay Area punk scene. That's quite good. Has there been one on the DC scene? I mean, just talking about, uh, you know, bad brains. I mean, I fucking love Government Issue, and I've never seen them even mentioned in one of these fucking punk documentaries. I think they get mentioned in the American Hardcore documentary. And they also get some some, uh, coverage in that American Hardcore book. I wasn't a big fan of the American Hardcore documentary, which is a shame because, you know, I actually know the producer and he was just like, oh, yeah, I really wish you would have liked my documentary better. It's like, oh, sorry. Oh, that's so awkward. <laughs> and it's totally awkward. Almost as good as when I got my roommate, the only year I was inv- invited out to Slam Dance, was the guy who co-directed that documentary on the Ramones that was out a few years ago. That I was just like, man, this documentary, what the fuck were they doing in this? You know, like every five minutes they're like, and the Ramones were just poised for being popular and i'm like what what are you talking about why would the ramones be a popular band look at these guys those ramones are peculiar they're ugly 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 people these are all really great points and the fact that like punk wasn't just also relegated to london and new york and you know la like austin Texas had a really vital punk scene. And like, in fact, somebody, Mike, you probably know this, but Tom Huckabee, who directed Taking Tiger Mountain, was in The Huns, which was a big, a big late 70s punk band in Austin. And they were really good. For the record, I, I just got to hear them recently. And sorry for bumping up against the mic there. But uh, no, Boston. No, that's actually one of the benefits of being married to somebody from New England who grew up as a metal punk head in the seventies and eighties is, you know, I've gotten, I've gotten to hear a lot of stuff. I, some of it I already knew about, but, but yeah, there were just, there's so many different scenes. And also even with the big cities, it's like, okay, if we're doing New York, listen, we all know about Thermones and Blondie. We all love them, but come on. There was the fast who like are criminally underrated. You had Lance Loud and the Mumps. You know, the Dictators hardly, they when they get mentioned, it's kind of like a joke, but the Dictators were a great band. I love the Dictators. Um, and every city you could do that, you know. I mean, it, you know, hell, when they mention the UK scene, I, f- I feel like you're lucky if the Damned get mentioned. The Damned are still going, and they're still kicking ass and have a great fan base. So, But yeah, if the Damned hardly get mentioned, then yeah, you're not going to hear about penetration. I fell into a friendship with a number of people from the Rochester, New York scene. You know, they had a great number of bands that would all support the national bands when they came through. 
and it never gets talked about. There's, I've never seen a, a, a modern compilation that's Rochester bands. I've never seen a modern compilation that's, um, you know, I'm sure Fargo had punk bands. I know we, Minneapolis had its own scene. Minneapolis had a huge scene. Yeah. I, I mean, well, they had multiple huge scenes. Sorry to keep picking on that fucking punk documentary, but there's like no mention of <laughs> Chicago. There's no mention of like amphetamine reptile. There's no mention of the the record labels out of Minneapolis, you know? It's like we jump from the mid eighties punk scene in LA to fucking grunge in nineteen ninety. I'm like, did we forget an entire fucking decade and most of the country? Oh god. There's actually a a really good documentary called You Weren't There, the story of the Chicago punk scene that covers like 77 to 84. That's well worth checking out. And they talk about Naked Ray Gun and like a whole bunch of bands I'm, I'm totally blanking on that, that were important. There's also a Amphetamine Reptile documentary, which is a scene that I'm not really interested in, but the documentary is fascinating. No, I watched that uh, two years ago, last year, for the uh, Chicago Underground Film Festival, and I was like, okay, yeah, this isn't a scene I was necessarily into, but it was very fascinating. And again, it's this whole idea of, like, instead of it being one particular group, it's a record store that becomes a record label and becomes, like, you know, the home of these bands. And it's like, that's the DIY thing, man. That's the ethos, again, trying to get people out there. And that was the way there was, you know, like... There were so many record labels that were record stores as well. Yep. Have you ever heard of a film called Towncraft? I have not. It's about the Arkansas punk scene. And it talks about the Little Rock scene in the 80s. And it brings it up to speed to the modern day at the time this was made, which is in the 2000s, about what happened to a lot of these bands and, and who's still playing music. And it's it's kind of fascinating for that cultural snapshot of a scene that next nobody knows about that maybe never got any national attention and what it meant to the people that were there and who's still carrying on and who's around and who's not. I mean, it's that whole thing of like history is written by the winners. So it's like, you know, we got the, the, the guy who's making, you know, Heather, you talked about agendas, you know, and you've got that whole thing of like, I want to write about my friends and not the people that were in the other bands, you know, Talking to my friends in Baltimore, and it's just like, oh, yeah, people know about this band, but they don't know about these 20, 30, 40 other bands that were actually better than the one that made it big. And if only people knew about these other bands instead. The bus breaks down. The tour breaks down. Everybody is mad at each other by the end of this. The way that they have the uh, the three remaining guys get in the back of the the equipment truck for the film crew it's a pretty sad but effective way to end this documentary. I really like the way that this kind of end of the tour and the way that we get the whole idea of the, uh, another state of mind song being played throughout so much of this. And especially those moments where it's like the acoustic version of it playing so effective, especially over scenes like this, where it's just things aren't necessarily going as good as they could. Can we talk about the bus for a minute? It's a school bus which was designed to take kids to school to be educated, to learn. These, these young people get on this bus in California to go hopefully spread the word and teach kids around North America that they're not alone, that they can be better people, that they can make their own scene, that they can do their own thing. And much like American culture, 
in many ways, the bus starts to fail them. The education that they're trying to impart fails because of the infrastructure of the bus. And I'm sure that nobody ever thought of this when they were making it. Or maybe two or three pretentious guys were like, oh, the bus is a nice metaphor. But but if you step back and you think about it, it is kind of – the bus kind of symbolizes the, the mission and how the mission falls apart. And in the end, they abandon it. But at the same time, we get a we get a montage of what's in the bus before they leave. And it might have broken down and been abandoned, but – you know, they give it such attention that you know that it was something that was important, that they cared about, that was, you know, it was a tr- literally their transportation through this this journey, through this odyssey, if you will. And I, I was struck rewatching the film about kind of how that, that school bus really is is an important part of what's going on. And it's almost constantly in the background. At the beginning, they talk about outfitting it. And at the end, they talk about the problems with it. But it's kind of always there. And and I think that that's, that's interesting. And I think that the music also is something that is always there and that is always there to impart knowledge or to inspire or to help carry people through. And I, I think that there's there's a, an interesting tie there. And I kind of wonder what happened to the bus. I know they abandoned it and left it, but, you know, is it still sitting there somewhere? Did somebody scrap it? I mean, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting thought that's that's you know that struck me and i was like hmm i don't i don't know that many films would purposely or even accidentally you know showcase that yeah those shots from inside the bus towards the end and then when sean gets out of uh you know at the very end when sean recaps stuff and he's just like ten thousand miles a couple thousand dollars in the hole monetarily it's a dismal failure but we actually did what we set out to do and it's just like okay that's a pretty damn good attitude about all that stuff. And, you know, here we are, what, 25 years later talking about it. How many how many of, of films like this are, are sitting in dusty shelves somewhere? How many were never made? One of the things I looked at was what were the big hit bands of this, this year? It was filmed in, what, 82, 83? I think 82. Okay. So, I mean, is anybody really making a documentary about, I don't know, Survivor or um, Jake Isles' band? And I'm not picking on these bands. They just happen to be the the artists that were at the top of the charts that year. I mean, I have yet to see a John Cougar concentra- a Mellencamp uh, documentary. <laughs> I've seen the Chicago documentary. That's interesting too. Nobody make the John Cougar Mellencamp documentary. We do not need this black hole portal opened in this world. It's not going to be a documentary. It's going to be a biopic. It's going to be a big hit in about two years, and it's just going to be called Melon Camp. I'm going to make my. I'm going to make an answer film to that called Fucking Pink Houses. That's what I'm going to do. Oh, that's going to be a major portion of it. The whole MTV promo of giving away the pink house. Yeah, it's going to be huge. Point is, this is what was topping the charts when this documentary is being made, and we're talking about social distortion and youth brigade. And a tour they went on in 1982. We're not talking about Olivia Newton-John. We're not talking about John Mellencamp. And are those things still in the cultural atmosphere? Yes, yes, they are. But I, you know, there's something unique about this little story that has survived this long. All right, guys, we're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. The first is with co-director Adam Small, and the second is with the other co-director Peter Stewart. And we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. 
Who is Carl Kolchak? He's a reporter. Now that is news, Vincenzo. News. And we are a news paper. We are supposed to print news, not suppress it. With the INS. What's an INS? Independent news servicer founded in 1904 by Enrico Peluzzi. Who seems to have a nose for the strange and unusual. Well, last year in Las Vegas, I uncovered a series of murders that turned out to have been committed by a vampire. And what is the Kolchak Tapes? It's a podcast. All about Carl Kolchak. What's a Kolchak? The Night Stalker. And where can you get it? On iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.kolchaktapes.com. As foolish a game as any that Gory the Ghoul could make up. Hey fans, this is Reverend Scott. Just want to tell you about Outside the Cinema. Great company. They review cult films, any cult film, every cult film. And it's something you should tune into. So if you get a chance, go to the website, look these guys up, Outside the Cinema, and find out what the hot cult films are today, what's going on. These guys are right on the cutting edge of reviewing cult movies. If you're a cult member, or you want to be a cult member, you're thinking about being a cult member, your mom's a cult member, your dad's a cult member, your damn mother-in-law's a cult member, <laughs> tune in outside the cinema, baby. You know, find out what's going on. Reverend Scott, and that's out. I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. And I'm Axel Kohag, and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertruestories.com. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. How did you decide to get involved with this project and, and make it happen? Peter Stewart has been a best friend since I was three years old. We ended up at Beverly Hills High School together, and we were both in film class. And uh, after we graduated, he went to Berkeley. I stayed in Los Angeles and started working for this uh, multi-millionaire who gave me a bunch of uh, three-quarter inch equipment and an editing system for the use of just going out and filming his vacations for him. Fourth of July celebration parties, Christmas parties, and I'd shoot them and edit them and put music to them and he'd give them to his friends. So he put me on a retainer, and I was basically his guy with all this equipment. And uh, he wouldn't call me that much. You know, it'd probably be once a month or once every two months, and I'd do this. And Peter was in the punk scene, Peter Stewart, and he was friends with Sean Stern, who also went to Beverly High with us. And Sean Stern was the leader of Youth Brigade. And Peter came to me one day and said, they're going on a tour for six weeks across America and Canada. Do you want to film it and make a documentary? I had the equipment. It was just sitting there. So I said, definitely, let's go for it. And so that's how the plan was hatched. <laughs> was it just the two of you guys as far as the crew? There was one other one. Sean Maloney came with us, and he was our PA. 
and he basically helped us with equipment and everything. But yeah, it was, uh, I shot most of it. Peter wrote most of it. We co-directed the project. We rented a small truck. I think it, in the end, you see the truck that the, uh, the group went home in. That was our truck, and we slept in that for six weeks. So we had two cameras and two three-quarter-inch porta-packs, and we just we followed them. How was it as far as getting these guys to open up to you and to be honest with you as far as their reactions to things? This is before you know the age of reality television, so it's still – I'm sure they're not that familiar with the documentary form at this point. They got used to us. And, you know, they realized that we were there to show a different side to punks. I think previous films, you know, was featuring them rolling in glass and look how self-destructive they can be. And our angle was that they're kids with troubled pasts, trying to figure things out. They're good kids. They're not, they're not bad. And, and this is just their way of expressing themselves. So I think they thought it was positive. They all had egos, so they liked the crew following them. So they basically, you know, let us do whatever, and they they really weren't that self-conscious after the first few days. There were the interviews with the girls, I think, around, like, the D.C. part of it. Very open, honest, raw kind of interviews. How did you manage to get some of the people that ne weren't necessarily with the band? Peter, knowing the scene, would find a lot of these interesting people. The truth is, we were uh, about two weeks into the tour, and to be honest, we realized that this was a pretty boring <laughs> documentary. The groups were not, I mean, I think Mike Ness was amazing, but a lot of them, it was kind of uh, the same thing every night, and we were like, wow, I don't think we're going to have a movie if we just follow these guys and their adventures. As opposed to the tour and the groups being great wraparounds, for finding the different amazing stories in the towns, like Valerie in, in Baltimore. The Canadian punks were amazing. The guy that had been uh, hit by a car in Canada as well, the manor. Um, also the, the Christian punks in Los Angeles. So we said we've got to find different stories in every city and branch out and do those stories and then come back to our tour. That was hatched about two weeks in because Youth Brigade and Social Distortion were not were not charismatic enough to pull off a movie all by themselves. I mean, to be honest, that's the truth. I mean, if you don't have Minor Threat and 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 do that do that sequence, uh, you know, those are the most riveting moments. I, mean, I love Mike Ness talking about what he watches on TV during the day, but those those different stories, I think give you a whole picture, uh, uh, a picture of uh, punk in uh, Canada and America that you wouldn't get just by following two bands. It's almost unimaginable these days, 2019, that we're talking. How was it crossing the border? I'm sure like these days it would be almost impossible for the the three of you guys and then the the punk rock bands and their crew and everybody to cross the border. Well, Sean Stern was very organized. He did all the all the scheduling and all the uh, for those guys, and he had all their, I think, Carthay forms and passport stuff. So, I don't remember it being a problem. It, it certainly wasn't uh, for us, although it was a long time ago. It was 1982. So, um, 
but I don't remember there being a problem with it. How was the actual shooting itself? Because I know that the three-quarter inch equipment was not easy to haul around. It was insanely heavy. Like on the third day, the uh, one of the cameras busted a tube. So if you look at it, there's some shots that look a little greenish, and that's the reason. And it was a Sony 6000, the camera, which was hugely heavy. And then on top of that, you had a backpack with a three-quarter inch player in it, and they were 20-minute loads, and it was it was heavy. Some of those slam pan sequences, I was on stage and knocked over, but that was all fun. It's funny that you had both Ian McKay and Keith Morrison there because they've almost made like a cottage industry of appearing in punk rock docs since then. Peter was, and 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 I still think is in touch with the scene. I'm, I was not at all. I was just a filmmaker saying, "All right, you want to throw me in this adventure? I'll just go to it and." And, and do it. So I'm, I'm, after that movie was done, I didn't stay involved and follow the music. I'm not even a, I'm not even a fan of a lot of the music. So it's basically I was given a job, and I don't mean anyone was paying me. I mean I was given a a, a challenge, and it was awesome to dive into this world and uh, and explore it and make a movie about it. Well, you guys were shooting this in what 1982, and then it comes out in '84. How much did you shoot? It must have been crazy to edit all this. Oh, it was, I think it was like 70 hours. And we had to log every shot. And uh, back then, since it wasn't digital, we had to make a copy of every tape. So when you cut with the copied tapes, because these three-quarter machines could chew up the tape and destroy it. So we saved our originals. And then we made copies, and then we edited off of that. It was brutal. It was very uh, touch-and-go, technically. I mean, I just had two three-quarter-inch decks and a uh, little Sony editor in my house, and that's what we uh, that's what we edited on every day. How long did it take you to put it together, friendly? It was about a year and a half, just getting it all finally finished. And then uh, I think we got it released. We found a uh, porno company was trying to go legitimate, and so they transferred the film onto uh, the, the tape onto 16 millimeter, and it actually had a theatrical release. <laughs> and then I think it aired on Night Flight. I think that's where a lot of people saw it, and it's got a bit of a cult following today. Were you gigging in the meantime while you were working on the editing of this? Yeah, Peter and I were uh, second unit directors on Ripley's Believe It or Not which starred Jack Palance. So we'd go, uh, we'd go to, uh, crazy cities and film, uh, film crazy stories like turning, uh, human waste into drinking water. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was an insane job. You'd go to these crazy stories and we do that while we were editing when we were not on the road. Were you still on that guy's payroll at the same time? I was, I was. And then he found out that, uh, that he bankrolled this film and he was a right winger who didn't really appreciate punk rock. And so I had to give all the equipment back, Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> but the film was done and it was all good. <laughs> I'll give you a fun little uh, story on, uh, uh, another state of mind. The cast came to us probably somewhere in Canada, probably halfway through the tour. And they, they said, we're not going to sign any release forms unless you give us 50% of this film. And they basically held us hostage. They never offered to 
to pay for anything. We'd done everything to promote them, to shoot their lives, to show a positive side. Also, the idea that we're doing a movie about your lives. What could be better publicity? Anyways, their thank you was, we're not signing release forms, so you have no movie uh, if you don't give us 50% of this. And so we just uh, we got them drunk in a hotel because Canadian beer is so strong. And uh, once they were good and drunk, they signed all the release forms. <laughs> That's a part of the movie that I'm most proud of. Because how dare they try to hold us hostage after we were just these friends, nice people doing this. But also, that's a whole metaphor for the punk scene. We then, um, we, on our own money, Peter and I bought, uh, rented, uh, it was Beverly Cinema. Uh, we rented uh, a huge video projector. And we, since there was no release for this film, we were going to show it for three weeks, a theatrical release. And um, we sold out the first night. I think it was $5 a ticket, $4 a ticket, something like that. And um, the first showing, people freaked out. They loved it. The second showing, we'd sold out three shows that, that night. Second showing, a drunk punk tackled the video projector and destroyed it. Everybody. And this was, the, the, the film was, uh, it's, I think it's like nine, 90 minutes. Uh, I'm not sure. It literally had three minutes to go before the end. And every single person there demanded their money back. And some people took tickets and, and, and doubled to get more money. So they were basically fucking us after we'd done this movie. And Sean Stern was kind of snickering because he was like security and didn't really do anything. So it was like after all that, it was just like, well, what a bunch of assholes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I guess I sound bitter, but it was such a drag because we put so much energy in in showing a uh, a positive side. But I guess it's not that positive that the rough and tumble punks got plane flights home from their parents <laughs> when the tour went south. <laughs> but those are a couple of the big ticket items I, I don't talk about much. I've got another fun fun story. Mike Messner, he was very lazy. We kept asking him to write the song, Another State of Mind, so that we can follow the process through him writing it, and he wouldn't do it. So Peter, who's a, a great songwriter in his own right, sat with Mike, and they basically wrote the song together. And in two days, we shot all those, what looked like all the different places he was writing the song. So it was like a week before the end, we just... They had the song, and we said, all right, let's put you in the bus. Pretend like you don't have the notes there. All right, let's put you on the steps with your acoustic guitar and start humming the song and say, oh, yeah, I think I've come up with this song. So that was completely manufactured because he wouldn't get off his ass and write the fucking song. So Peter did it all and forced it, and it, it looked really good, and we just shot it in different locations to make it look like it was happening over the course of the tour. <laughs> That is incredible. Yeah, I always thought, oh, wow, that is such a nice hook that you have through this. Exactly. Movie. Well, that's the thing. We just we didn't have a hook. So with that and then, and then those different stories throughout the cities, that was our hook. And by the way, it's, I think it's Peter playing all the acoustic uh, score of Another State of Mind throughout the, uh, throughout the instrumentals as you're going you know, in the bus and everything. 
Yeah, it took a lot of work to get to, to get it done. Did he get any <laughs> credit for the songwriting? Uh, I think he and um, oh, I can't remember his name for the for the title song. He got credit for D- during the opening that feedback and the uh, he wrote that. The sad thing is we sold our rights. I was broke. I borrowed money from from Peter for tax trouble I'd gotten into when I was like 20, <laughs> 26. And uh, we sold the rights for like, uh, I think for like $4,000. <laughs> I don't know who has it now, but uh, we don't own any of it. And that was my doing. If Peter ever hears this, I apologize. I have to admit, we um, there's one character or, or person in the movie that we used to make fun of mercilessly. I can't remember the guy's name, but he's the one who keeps Mike, changing Mike his Brinson. hair color. Yes. Yeah, Mike Brinson. Yeah, and he, he agreed to do it. Yeah, and that was our other hook. All right, let's change your hair in how many cities? Yeah, he was he was a trip. That's exactly who he was. He was that guy. It's just such the cliche of the um, the surfer dude. I just love it. Yeah, she had like 40 stab wounds, but I was into it. so did this help open any doors for you not in the business but creatively knowing how to edit and direct a uh, feature length documentary was tremendously helpful i mean after this i became an actor and uh and then went on a uh, did a late night show that went to the edinburgh festival in scotland and i ended up meeting uh the teaming up with the director and then we became a writing team and our first job was on in living color in 1990. (laughs) So from punk rock to in living color was a, a far jump. And then after that, we created mad TV and, uh, wrote some Pauly Shore movies and Malibu's most wanted. And so I never went back into the punk, uh, or documentary world. Was that fax bar? Yes. Okay. I've actually had fax on the show before. Oh, yeah. 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 I met Fax when we did the Stephen Weed show, which uh, co-starred Brian Cranston. And so Fax was the director, and then we teamed up and uh, did all those other shows. Yeah, he's got that weird, uh, you know, doing Hearts of Darkness and then goes into, yeah, Malibu's Most Wanted. And it's just like, how how do you make that leap? It's always just amazing. Well, he was doing uh, Hearts of Darkness while we were on In Living Color. Uh, he'd be editing uh, Hearts of Darkness, and I'd be at, in a living color, and I'd turn on his computer and put his computer on and, and, and a cup of coffee on his desk, and when they'd say, where's facts, I'd say, oh, he's down the hall or something. <laughs> and then he'd get in around 11, and then we'd keep working. <laughs> Is it true that you were in The Return of Bruno? Yeah, yeah. I had a, uh, my my brother was an agent, and his client, Joey Pleva, was best friends with Bruce Willis. He was in uh, Die Hard as one of the terrorists, and he s- said uh, we need a part of someone that looks like a beetle, and I had uh, I had long hair and, and bangs, uh, and so uh, I became uh, a part of that band in the early 60s <laughs> in that show. I can't tell you how many times that movie's come up over the years. Anytime we talk about Bruce Willis, I always talk about The Return of Bruno for whatever reason. Yeah, I gotta get a copy of that and get that on tape. It's pretty funny. What are you working on these days? I'm a uh, showrunner for. I uh, was on a show for uh, Disney XD called Walk the Prank, which was uh, an amazing show. It was uh, kids pranking adults, and the um, the idea was that it's a group of kids that have a 
their version of a YouTube channel and they prank adults. But we do these real pranks and basically uh, destroy babysitters. But just with with kids, it, it it was amazingly dark and funny for for Disney. And we've got a new show that we're coming out with called Just Roll with It, and it's a uh, multicam sitcom. But the live studio audience gets to vote on what happens to the cast right there. Yeah, it's really it's really an amazing challenge and, and a really cool show. Yeah, it's just so amazing. Your CV is just freaking crazy to see things like. Bad Grandpa and In the Army Now and Son-in-Law and Malibu's Most Wanted. I mean, just so many touchstones of, of popular culture over the years. You know, the fun thing is it starts with another state of mind, which 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 I love. Because a couple of people who were on staff, I was, you know, uh, we did a show called Blue Collar TV. And, you know, that's just middle America, safe, kind of funny comedy. But my assistant, that was his favorite movie growing up. And it's like, that's you? You're the one that did another state of mind. It's just kind of funny and and cool that um, I could have done that and and do what I'm doing now. It gives me a little edge that that I enjoy. Well, Mr. Small, thank you so much for your time. This was great. Well, I appreciate it, and I hope I hope this was helpful. Well, thank you, and hey, good uh, best of luck with your future endeavors. I'm looking forward to just roll with it. Thank you. I appreciate it. You just heard from director Adam Small, and coming up next, you will hear from director Peter Stewart. And I asked Peter how he and Adam first met. We met in uh, nursery school. I don't know if he told you that. No, but, uh, I didn't know you so, guys went back that far. Yeah, our parent. We went to the same nursery school, and uh, our parents were friends a bit, and uh, so that makes you know we're both fifty-eight. He might be fifteen. I can't remember. And so that's since the age of like three or four, we've had a a friendship. That's my longest friendship, you know. Well, with your dad being a filmmaker, was that pretty much like, uh, this is what I'm going to be as well? Not necessarily a filmmaker. I I always assumed I would do something. I don't even want to say in the entertainment industry. I'd rather say the arts. I I went to UCLA and I studied creative writing. I never never went to film school. And I assumed I was going to be a writer or maybe a musician. My dad was actually a musician before he became a filmmaker. I don't know if he talked about that. He has a great story that he, he had studied music. He'd gone to, to NYU and then I think Columbia, uh, his parents spent all their money on his music career. And one night he went to see Stravinsky conduct the Symphony of the Psalms at, uh, Carnegie Hall. And he said, he was in his 20s right now. He had a band, a three-piece band. He was the leader. And, and he said, I'm never going to be that good. And he went home and told his parents he was going to do something else, which they weren't happy about. And it was kind of a ridiculous standard. You don't hold it yourself to Stravinsky. There's an in-between. But anyway, I um, I grew up no, yeah, knowing I'd be in the arts or entertainment, but I assumed I would do more involved. And I ended up doing, I still do writing uh, and directing, producing, but not exactly like my dad. And I think, uh, you know, after another state of mind, shortly after I moved to France, and that's where I've worked the rest of my life, France and England. I just, I wanted to get away from, uh, in a way, get away from his shadow and just make it on my own in a different way. 
but his, his, his influence loomed heavily, obviously. And what was great about my dad was that whether it was when I played in a punk band or whether I worked in like bizarre French comedy television, he, um, was always, uh, extremely enthusiastic and helpful. There was nothing I could do that would, where he would say, Oh, well, why are you doing that? Or that's so bizarre. You know, there was no reason for him to be. Uh, be supportive of me playing punk rock, but he would actually sit there and help me on my keyboard parts if if I would let him. Or I did a punk magazine for a while, and he would let me use his office to photocopy it. He, he was a very supportive influence in that sense, and he he loved the subject matter. You know, strangely enough, he loved the he loved another state of mind. He used to show it to his friends. He, that was the kind of guy he was. He had a, he had a strange sense of humor was very open to new ideas when you played music what was your instrument uh keyboards it was always keyboards i played when i was a kid but then took it back up again and we all i was going to berkeley and uh it was this is 79 or something and a bunch of friends were starting a punk band back in la so i i stopped going to berkeley even though i loved it and and did, did the punk band for several years ended up then going to ucla but we we were a real band and we played locally and we toured ironically a mark stern from the stern brothers of another state of mind he eventually was a drummer in our band our most famous member for me was um the bass player was named robert lopez who went on to become elvez if you look at elvez it's the mexican elvis oh yeah i saw a documentary on him once oh really well he was our bass player and uh there was a, a guy named Kevin Hunter who went on to start a band called Wire Train that had uh, one big hit, one big new wave kind of hit, and they used to tour with me too. But we never we opened for once for the Dead Kennedys amongst like ten other bands in uh, San Francisco, and uh, we played with opened for you know local famous bands here, but we never had a we never had a big following, and we were called the Johnnies. Did you ever cut a record? We cut a single, yes, which still exists. The titles are Happiness is High Speed, Spy for Your Love, and uh, Stuck on Her, I think. Those are the three songs on our ill-fated single. The L.A. punk scene was fantastic at that time. That toward, Just towards the end, well, toward, towards the time of Another State of Mind, on the back end of that is when it, the, the scene turned into something else. It was less... Less fun, less artistic. It was more testosterone and um, machismo. And, and the Stern still flourished in that world. Uh, but it wasn't, it didn't have the creative spark. It didn't have, wasn't so much a celebration of difference anymore. When I first became interested in it, I was a, you know, your classic high school loser who was looking for a, a group that I would feel accepted in, a group of outsiders. Of course, it didn't work exactly like that. I remember the first punk concert I went to. I, uh, my friend and I, we found crazy clothes and colorful shirts and weird sunglasses, trying to emulate what we had seen and not really knowing. And the first thing, there were two punk girls sitting outside the whiskey go-go. I remember and said, "Oh, looks like somebody raided his daddy's closet. Raided his daddy's closet." <laughs> and I was like, "I, I wanted to weep." It was like, "No, no." That's not that's not what this is supposed to be. Remember, the, you know, 
my my assumption was this is where everyone accepts everyone because we're all like the in freaks at the end we accept you one of us we accept you one of us that that was what i thought it was a, a club for alternative people anyway it was still it became magical i did feel accepted i found like-minded people and that yeah that's what changed when it turned more into the south beach uh surfer slam dancing you know aggressive slam dancing which i used to slam dance but it turned into something you got we were more scared to go into the pit because guys were out there really to have a fight and they they weren't uh you know it was like suddenly the the gay community wasn't welcome i know i you know i had gay friends the member of the screamers um who used to talk about this and and if you read this kind of social histories of punk that there were a lot of gay people at the beginning and by that scene really alienated them they didn't feel safe there and once you lose that and you lose women because they don't feel safe it just it takes on a totally different vibe which i didn't enjoy as much and that was interesting another friend of mine was just at the cusp of that when you see some of that slam dancing footage, which I think we had the best slam dancing footage that's ever been recorded. That's just at the time that it was changing. You don't see many, you don't see many women and you don't see many people just kind of dressed in an artistic, uh, surrealistic way. It's, it's more now just angry young men or dumb and full of cum kind of creatures. So what came first, the working on Ripley's Believe It or Not, or Another State of Mind? It was Ripley's that was first. Adam and I were doing little, we were starting to learn how to use the video, and we were doing little comedy sketches and things like that. We always had some creative project going, but then my dad offered, offered us Ripley's basically because we were cheap, because Adam had his own equipment. And it was a great, great learning ground, but um, it's funny the first time we showed my dad uh, another state of mind, he said, "Yeah, it's, it's all right, but your Ripley stuff is better," which, <laughs> which is just because it, it always had to be about him, you know. And it was an insane thing to say, but that was him as well. Which I know contradicts what I said earlier, but he was a man of contradiction. So, but Ripley was very helpful because we were we were learning we were learning the equipment, and it, it prepared us for. To a certain degree, another state of mind, but another state of mind is technically a, an abysmal film, obviously. And I don't know if I haven't told you, but the tragedy of that film is that, of its legacy, is that the copy that is seen is not the final copy. It's not mixed properly. Adam, when he sold it to them, gave them the wrong one inch. There's a, there's a one inch master that was mixed, and then there was a one inch master that came out of the the edit that wasn't yet mixed, and he gave them. So if you if you watch it, if you can see it on YouTube, or if you buy the DVD, you, you, there's these horrible things where, uh, like, music suddenly cuts off, or or you can't hear somebody's voiceover, and that's all because it's the the wrong version is what the world has. I would give for free the good version, but I know they would never invest in reproducing the the proper version. We when we did a voiceover for the DVD, I offered. I said, please. I'll give it to you. There's stretches where you just can't hear what the people are saying, but I guess people thought it was part of the DIY production. And yes, we did. We didn't know what we were doing half the time. And the, the sound was, was with a hand mic. And there's a sequence in um, Montreal that I shot uh, that I did the camera work on and I'd never used a camera. And there's some out of focus shots, the whole scene in Montreal, if you know it, all those, that whole sequence. I had never used the camera before, but Adam uh, 
wasn't in town at that time, and I had to do it. Tell me how the project began, and how did you approach the guys in Youth Brigade and say, this is what we want to do? I was friends with them anyway. We were all, we had gone on tour together. They had a band called The Extremes, and we were the Johnnies. We did a tour up the coast where we did Santa Barbara, Santa Cruz, San Francisco. We did all that together. We were, you know, definitely part of the same scene. Eventually, I moved into a house. It's, it's a, it was a famous house in the history of punk called the Skinhead Manor. And that was, if you read your punk history, it was a important meeting place uh, for punks. Again, in this post-artsy punk era, uh, more the skinhead era. And I, and I was, that was this, the Stearns, the brothers Stearns and me and my friend Lucas Reiner, who was in the Johnnies. Uh, we, we were the first four in that house. So they went to, we went to high school. I went to high school with them. I knew them from there and they were to their credit, like the first, just about the first punks in Beverly Hills high school, which is where we went. And, uh, they were always outsiders. Sean Stern was a surfer and had long hair and he was, he was always, uh, a kind of class. So anyway, we, I knew them well and it was just a, literally a conversation. Oh, we're going to go on tour. And immediately I said that would make a great movie. I don't have the equipment. It was literally that simple, like often good ideas are. It was, yeah, we're going on tour across the country um, with uh, social distortion. And that was, I think, you know, uh, my dad had made a lot of documentaries and I was well-versed in them. And I immediately in my head, I said, that's a great documentary. Just, uh, I guess I had um, grown up, one of my favorite films was Endless Summer, two young men traveling across the world in search of the perfect wave. And I think that flashed in my head immediately, but in, in a different style. And I, I, I don't know what moment uh, it hit me, but it was like, okay, it's great. Cause it's not just a concert film. It's got a story, which you don't know how the story is going to end, but it's a built in narrative, which is always a bonus for a documentary as opposed to decline of Western civilization, which is a great film and important film, but it's just, you know, it's a bunch of bands a procession of bands with no real narrative here. It's a totally, it's a human story and it's uh, not totally important who the bands are as much as what happens along the way. And that's why I think it, it worked because it's not because of the youth brigade music for sure. Well, you also had the hook of the actual song and seeing the song being written. I was curious about the backstory on that. Again, I get maybe it was because I was a creative writing major at, uh, at that time, at, well, at first at Berkeley, then at UCLA. And, so I thought, I thought in those in a narrative sense, and it's and, uh, of having stringing people along. So that's a mini story within the story. And Mike Ness came up with that great title. It infuriated the game because they wanted to have the song be one of theirs. But I thought if we can string, and, and it came. The idea came, you know, late. It was we had to pack it all in and cheat a bit because he didn't start writing it as early. I, I don't think as it looks in the film, but. Uh, whenever you can do that, whenever you can have that kind of that kind of structure where you get a beginning, middle, and end, so you get that with the song, you get that with the in the overall film. It's always an easy and effective device. You really feel like you've been through something. You get a payoff, and that it also could be the title of the film. That was a bonus. So we encouraged him. It wasn't. It wasn't like he. We had to push him to finish it, and literally, he was finishing it the day he left. Just about. I, I had to really get on his back. It was, I think it was about the, the bridge that he hadn't written the bridge. And we had to get that. I think it was like the day he left it. We shot that. 
I heard that maybe you were teaching him the parts before he would teach the band the rest of the parts. I think Adam exaggerates that a bit. I did. I did help a bit in that. I think it was in that bridge just because I was saying, we got to do this. We got to get a full song before you go. And I think, yeah, I probably helped him a bit with that part because I, I write songs as well. So the, that's from my punk days. Well, I'm surprised it wasn't the Johnnies and the Youth Brigade instead of Social Distortion. There were no Johnnies by then. I was in a, you know, I was in a different band, and uh, the Johnnies weren't wouldn't have fit in that in that world. We were a little a little too artsy, I think, for the for those crowds by that time. But yeah, no, there were no no Johnnies, and we weren't. Sean you know, always deserves credit for his managerial skills and his ability to organize that tour and to even dream it because not a lot of people would sit there and say, I'm going to go on a tour through Canada and all the United States that they dream about it, but they wouldn't bring it to fruition. So he deserves credit for that. You mentioned that Youth Brigade wanted to have the title rather than Social Distortion. Were there many conflicts between the two bands otherwise? At the end of the film, Youth Brigade had a song called We'll Think and uh, we'll sink with California. We'll sink with California while it falls into the sea. And they thought that would be more fitting. Uh, otherwise, no. It was it was a classic punks depend. It's so funny. It's like a, the the Russian dolls where it goes in circles, small and small. The punks depend on us versus them mentality to so to, to function. And there's even a forget his name, Jimmy Barnes or something that was in the film with spiky hair. He, I, I knew him from UCLA and he talks about us versus them. Everything is us versus them. He's blaming, he's saying that's how society is, not punks. But in fact, punks are very us versus them. And, uh, you know, Sean Stern created us versus them, the filmmakers versus the band, the filmmakers get to sleep in hotels. Which we, we only slept in a hotel once because our, um, but we slept, there were three of us that slept in the back, back of a truck, you know, and we lived the same life they did. They often lived a better life because they got to sleep in people's houses. There were three of us in the back of a van. But he had to create that. They need, they thrive on that. So society is us versus them. Then it becomes the filmmakers versus the band, us versus them. And then it became uh, Youth Brigade versus Social Distortion, us versus them. And that was based on that Sean was the man with the money and he, and the, the man who was planning the tour. So if anything went wrong, it was... Yeah, Sean promised this, Sean promised this, that. So that it became just another, the man, they always have to have the man. You know, when they, it's like when they dress the way they do, yeah, people are going to, especially at that time and you're in Calgary and they're coming in with their, you're asking for a reaction. Don't pretend. And I, and that's great. I think it's great to demand and confront and create a reaction, but don't act like all innocent and say, it's us versus them and they don't accept this. It's um so no no I found that hysterically funny because there was just they I I noticed how they were always looking for a confrontation or, or a, a feeling of victimhood um or someone to battle and so that existed with the band it existed with us as the crew it existed with the universe. How many guys was it other than uh, you and Adam as far as the crew goes? Oh, just one guy. And you see at the end of the film, you see, you don't see him, but you see the white truck we slept in because they had one on the way back, the last leg, we had to all sleep in the truck, the people who were still there. So that was insane. But you see me opening the truck. And yeah, it was just one guy named Sean, Sean Maloney, who had never done any, anything in film, but he was our, he helped drive, he helped load equipment. There was one night where that was the one night we slept in a hotel. It was in Detroit. 
and Adam was having migraines and I can't remember the whole thing, but for some reason, Sean was the only one in the truck and people tried to break in and he impersonated a dog and crashing against the the gate, the the door of the van um, to scare them off. That was so no, just three of us and, you know, who didn't really know anything about what we were doing. It seems like it must have been such a tense shoot. I mean, you've got all of these young guys who, you know, as you said, young, dumb, and full of cum, and then you've got no money for anything. It just must have been a real harrowing experience. It wasn't tense. I mean, there was a good vibe most of the time. The tension came more from feeling, at least from our end, I think from feeling, Adam must have had it more than me because he's the one who put himself on the line for the money. I just quit college and never went back. I was in my last year at UCLA and I never went back, but um, which my mom still complains about. But no, the tension, the big tension was, are we wasting our time? Have we made fools out of ourselves? These guys are not delivering the goods. There are some days where you'd have nothing to show for. It's just another kind of concert with low attendance and um, how many times are we going to fill these same songs? That was the tension that didn't come so much from, you know, we were in our different cars. So, you know, sometimes we would ask them to do stuff that they didn't want to do, or we'd feel like they weren't working hard to make this film uh, good. Uh, so, so, or, you know, really contributing. They were just kind of drunken and wandering around. So that created a little tension, but no, the tension, at least from our side, they had horrible tensions on the bus. There's no question about that. And, the arguments about money and the bus breaking down. And you can imagine, I mean, whatever is 10, 18 year olds on a bus stinking and, uh, and farting and drinking beer. Uh, I couldn't have taken it, but Adam and I had self-imposed tension of what if we get back and there's no movie and he's wasted the man's money. I've, I've quit college and we've just made idiots out of ourselves. And that's when I, I started adding these other elements, you know, again, going back to my documentary roots. Cause again, I grew up, my dad, he was more famous for documentaries than anything else. And I grew up around that. He used to put me in his documentary through the night. Uh, I knew how I knew the language. And so like that whole slam dancing sequence, getting the guy, Brian to be alone in the room, explaining how to do it. That was, that was the kind of thing I thought if we do this, and the film's going to go to another level. Those slam dancing kids who practice in the pool, that was my dad's pool. I, you know, when I, when I heard about them, I said, that's got to be in this film, doing the interviews with other people, although that's not the most original thing, but that also came because we realized no one was terribly articulate in the film. So if we could get some other voices, Valerie, the girl in Baltimore, that um, all the guys were against, they always asked us to cut her out. They didn't like that. They're all misogynist and also it wasn't about them. So, but that sequence, I'm proud of that sequence. It offers a totally different vision. It takes you to another place in the world of punk that you don't get from them. Uh, so those are the elements that, uh, to me that gave the film, uh, a bit more substance. And I, I don't want to say that's why the film uh, works, but because I still think it's the narrative structure, but, um, it's a big part of its appeal. I think. Well, and you also had uh, Ian MacKay and uh, who is it, Keith Morris. I mean, those guys have almost made like a little cottage industry out of appearing in punk documentaries. And I think you were the first ones to do it, to put them in something. Well, Ian especially, he was a, a gift from the gods and, and minor threat, uh, 
the, the fact that they were staying there, that Ian gave us his time and let us film him working at Hagen Doss. And yes, he's on being on he's a giant cult figure because of all all he's done after. So that was that was a great coup and it was like the meeting of two different the, the LA scene and, and his scene, which was so much different with the straight edge element. There were other bands along the way that we filmed, but that all that footage has been lost. So to history it's a shame. Uh, Keith, Keith Morris, I, I just knew from the LA scene, so he was good. And, uh, the guy named Jim, as I say, he was from UCLA, uh, very articulate young man. I don't know what, what's happened to him, but, uh, some of the, some of the girls, I was, it was important to me to get some other women in there. So, cause you, you just didn't have a lot. Oh, another, another narrative structure that I did. These are all mini things, but they really helped because they, they, they provide this narrative glue was, uh, Mike Benson getting his hair color changed. It was just one of the things that, you know, I said, let's just do this throughout and you string it along. And again, it feels like, Oh, we're, it's all part of the same storytelling. And then you end with him going black and the, the black hair dye going down the drain is, you know, one the last time he does it. So a little poetry, a little punk poetry. So when you get back to LA and you start looking at the footage, how do you start putting this whole thing together with note cards mainly also, you know, there's a good deal of reshooting that I'm sure I haven't told you about to, to complete it. Things that we were missing. The, uh, the Christian punks was shot after we got back little pickups where Sean, like the ending where Sean, not, not the ending where Sean falls on his bed, but where he summarizes the tour. I felt we needed that. The, an interview with social distortion. Just we we realized all the things we we're missing. There's an interview with social distortion before they go on the tour. Then a foreshadowing where they say, "Well, they say we're getting two dollars a day, but it's going to be a lot of mind games." That was actually done after, and they were all good actors. So, but that that came slowly. We started to piece the film together. I remember the first thing we we cut. The very first thing we cut was the music sequence for Mommy's Little Monster. I think it was just a. Uh, just to reassure ourselves and also to get our feet wet rather than starting from the beginning. And that, I remember that was a big victory because we actually cut together a, you know, two and a half, three minute song and it worked and we could show it to people and say, wow, that's great. And, uh, that's sometimes you need to do it that way. Uh, sometimes you can't start from the beginning because it's too daunting. So you do something just to give yourself that, that bit of belief that this thing can work. And then it was, uh, Certain things in putting together the the structure, you know, luckily certain things we knew, okay, they're going to, the bus is going to break down. And oh, uh, we cheated. One, there was a guy who went home in Detroit, Marlin, uh, that we shot at the Greyhound bus station here in LA. He did it without telling us. He just one day, oh, Marlin's gone home. He went to the bus station in Detroit and went home. So he was great. He came and he did it. And, and those, so all those things made themselves apparent as we were going through the editing process. But I'm a big believer in post-its or note cards. There's a photo somewhere Adam has of just this giant board. And I love that part of it. The jigsaw puzzle part is you begin to say, okay, here's a bit of storytelling. Then we get a break for the slam dance section. Here's a bit of storytelling. Then we do Christian section. And we got to find a quote that will lead into the Christian punk section, something where I think it was Keith Morris talking about religion and, yeah, like a jigsaw puzzle, you slowly, but there was a lot of footage to go through. Uh, big decisions about who gets how many songs and what songs we're going to use and what other things do I remember? I remember uh, I was in a band and got a guitarist to play an acoustic version of Another State of Mind. Um, 
that we use really there's a very lovely uh, montage of the bus through the night and kind of one of the more cinematic moments and, and we use this here's a bit of trivia i don't know if adam told you but i was friends with i'd gone to school with and lived in the same apartment building as a guy named jonathan dayton who along with his then girlfriend now wife valerie ferris they made little miss sunshine he directed little miss sunshine he has a big production company of uh, music videos they used to do music videos they just they did that film with um steve carell and uh the one about billy holiday uh, billy billy jean king versus about the tennis match i can't remember the name anyway but they did little miss sunshine and he uh, one day when we were and i can't remember the reason we needed somebody to shoot them because we were shooting it I, I don't know what it was oh adam had to go to his brother's wedding i think that was it so we got him to do some B-roll for us of uh, it's the shots of the guys looking at the Statue of Liberty and in the subway in New York. And that was Jonathan Dayton, the director of Little Miss Sunshine. That's trivia that nobody knows or cares about. And then, no, so it's slowly pieced together. We had more to shoot than we, we thought. I think we did um, Sean getting his hair cut while he talks about what the tour is going to be. That was restaged. So we were... It's. I know it's dishonest, but it it really helped the film. And as first-time filmmakers, we didn't. I don't think we knew everything we needed to get uh, to tell the story. And it all it all happened so quickly. Literally, there's one day they said we're going on a tour, and like two weeks later, we were gone. So we didn't have a lot of the time to do the prep. And what's it like when you finally get a rough cut together and are able to see this whole thing? Now it's painful to watch how bad it is technically, but. Um, at the time, we didn't realize that. So we felt we had uh, we we felt we had a film that was working. I I don't know how else to put it. I I think we were shocked when we started. I I don't think we knew if it was going to be uh, thirty minutes or we had no concept if it could be a whole film. But it it worked. There there was humor. There was things you wouldn't see anywhere else. And um. We so we began to show it to people and get a very positive reaction, except from a except from my dad who said you did better work on Ripley's and uh, some other people who said it's not. Uh, another Hollywood person said uh, you never cry. The movie never makes you cry. You need a scene where you cry. One of those classic Hollywood Hollywood producers is like you have nothing to say. You just say it's really nice when you got a scene where you cry. So it just sounds like a Saturday Night Live sketch, but. I remember that was that was a big a big Hollywood producer, but and the rest was great. And then um, I had the idea, you know, we couldn't put it into a. It wasn't a film; it was a video. And I thought this is going to change the world. We're going to put it on a video projector. Uh, I thought this is brilliant. We can still have put it in a theater. And, and we we went to that theater, the one that is owned by Quentin Tarantino now, on the Beverly Cinema. You know, they said, fine, as long as we get, you know, we share in the profits and we get the concession stand. And we had, we did our publicity and it, and it uh, was a Saturday and it sold out for the eight o'clock and the 10 o'clock. And I'm, you know, the story or Adam told you about what happened. Yeah. With the uh, projector breaking. Yeah. It was Tony, the lead singer for the adolescent who did a, a big dive. The first screening went well, a packed house. People loved it. Second screening at just about five minutes from the end when they were in Washington, D.C. He did a big stage dive onto the projector and knocked it out. And then 
you know, we said, of course, all this Sean security just kind of wandered off. They, they weren't there to help. And then uh, we had to go on stage and said, we'll give you your money back. Just show us your coupon. And then they were all on the, scrambling on the floor looking for coupons from the 8 o'clock show, the 10 o'clock show, anything to get money. But it was still, I considered it a successful night because we saw two full houses and, and people really enjoying the film and reacting the way we hoped they would. Um, and then we were contacted. Then, uh, yeah, we're contacted by this this porn company called Coastline Films, porn distributors, who wanted a legitimate film on their catalog for various tax reasons. And to them, we were legitimate. We were like a step up in the art world. So they agreed to pay to make a 16 millimeter copy. And it played at the cinema on Melrose. I can't remember the name. I remember I saw Matt Dillon go in one night, uh, which was a big deal for me. And and it did well, and we got fantastic reviews. You know, maybe we had an article in the LA Times, and we had um, someone from the LA Reader say it's the best rock uh, rock film of all time. Um, and so it was all worth it. <laughs> what can I say? It was all worth it. I didn't think, I didn't know if it would last. It lasted longer, much longer than I thought. And it just, it just kind of, I went on, I moved to France. Um, Adam began an acting career and then, you know, the tragic story of how that he sold it. And, um, so we lost, and that, that's, you know, very bittersweet ending for me that we just have no contact anymore with, with this film, which was our life and blood and soul it really came. It's one of those, that's your, your first film for me. It was, it really came out of my youth. It was the punk scene. It was what I believed in. It all was part of that area of my life that was, you know, what you care about when you're 18 sticks with you forever. And uh, so I have a real emotional connection to it. And I, I feel, yeah, like somebody stole my baby, but, but that's Hollywood. And at the time, nobody knew, you know, they said, we'll give you $7,000 for this film. And, Adam needed money and nobody knew really about videos and DVDs and what that all was going to mean. Uh, and it's not, it's not the money. It's, it's the, just the idea that I have nothing to do with it. Right. And maybe that the copy that you want people to see isn't even out there. That above all, I just want the world to at least see the proper mix. <laughs> it's, uh, not, not a lot to ask. And obviously everyone's gone their different ways. Uh, there was a screening, I think a 20th anniversary screening at, um, uh, here in LA and some of the Sean Stern showed up. I think two of the Stearns showed up and none of the, uh, social distortion. Well, one of them passed away, Dennis, but, uh, nothing for Mike Ness. Uh, but the film lives. It's, I got people, you know, Adam and I have done, I've done a lot of, TV in Europe and some big cult shows and uh, for British TV and French TV and Adam's done an amazing amount of work on American television. But I think when all is said and done, another state of mind will live on longer than any of the, the television shows we've made. I did a show called Eurotrash in Britain. It was huge. It was uh, on for 10 years. It was the, the, the ultimate late night after the pub crazy show co-hosted by Jean-Paul Gaultier, the French designer, you can look it up. It was a huge, um, top rated show for 10 years, but I, and people know it in Britain. And, but I still think in 20 years, all that's forgotten, but another state of mind will still be, there'll always be an interest to a new generation saying what was punk like. 
it will live on whether we like it or not longer than our other work. I think I, I might get wrong, but it's like my dad with Willy Wonka, you know, that's, and not that he's unhappy about that, but all the documentary work that he won Emmys for that will sadly be lost and will go on for as long as people are interested in movies. Well, you did one, um, the dark side of porn that I liked a lot. That was a recut of a much better documentary I did that when I left the company, I was a managing director of Rapido, this company that made dozens of shows. We were number one supplier to channel four for two years and, um, lots of great shows. Um, and that was Lolo Ferrari. If that's the one you're talking about, the woman with the very big breasts, she was, um, actually a, f- a featured character on Eurotrash, the show that I did. She even was, she called herself my daughter's godmother because she was around when my daughter was born. So I had this interesting relationship with her. And when she died, Eurotrash was still on the air and I wanted to make a, uh, a show just to tell people the story. But then when I left, Apparently, I've never watched it, but that version you saw is a recut. I, I think it's probably maybe 10 or 15% different than what I did. I'm sure the more they push, the more salacious things. But I'm glad, I'm glad you liked that. That was, that, that was more serious than, um, a lot of the stuff I did. Although I did win, uh, do you know who Eddie Izzard is? The comedian? Yeah. I did a series, a couple of series with him about, uh, called channel hopping about how you can see clips online about, uh, teaching French to British teenagers. That was, that one a BAFTA, you know, that was something I was proud of. Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, we did a wide variety. I did a show called Badass TV hosted by Ice-T, which was kind of like Euro trash, but about, uh, about black, black culture. So it might be anything from Rudy Ray Moore to Isaac Hayes to, um, uh, black porn star something just just the subversive underbelly of of black culture uh and did a three series of that with him so all those that that's always been my territory what are you working on now i do a show called le gold antoine g-a-u-l-e um which is a i i do the guy who star hosted eurotrash named antoine de he's a big star and i've worked with him for 30 years in france and so this is called the Gold Antoine, which is a, actually a pun because Gaul is as in Galois, as in the French, the original French, where they les Gaul. And, um, but Gaul also means erection. So it's the erection of Antoine, but it's really, really, um, it's like a, a comedy travel series about France. It's something we, we, we did a series already where we did Tokyo and uh, Barcelona and New York. We did all the major capitals and this one's just about the regions of France, but it's, like all the stuff I do, it's a mix of, uh, it's like, what do they call it in England? Factual entertainment, but it's comedy mixed with, it's like if, if Anthony Bourdain were, were mixed with, um, the daily show or more something that was funny. Um, I don't know how to, how to describe it, but it's, it's, it's great television. It should be on in America, but it's, it just turns out that I live and work in France. Well, eight months a year, I live in France. Well, it's not a bad gig if you can get it. No, and not, and this show where you know, we just did Corsica, so I got two weeks in Corsica shooting. Or, yeah, and or it's the Ronald or it's uh, Brittany, you know. And you get to when I when I was doing these other shows like Tokyo, I would get I get to stay for two months and in, between researching and shooting, and that's 
to me, it's the greatest gig in the world. Mr. Stewart, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Oh, you're welcome. Okay, I hope I gave you some stuff you can use. Speeding past my past mid-second, I just can't stop the beat. Thinking all their problems, all their nothing can touch you when you can't see. All right, we're back and we're talking about Another State of Mind, which is a documentary of the time from the time, as opposed to some of the other backward-looking documentaries that really rose-color things. Uh, You know, I've talked about that fucking punk documentary enough. I don't know if I need to go into it. Such a fucking mess. But I think there were other things that were shot around the time, most particularly, I think everybody, well, especially everybody on this podcast is familiar with Decline of Western Civilization Part 1, which was put out in 81 and shot in 79 and 80. So that was kind of capturing the time, you know, just right before this one was capturing the time. So it's kind of interesting to look at the two and compare and contrast what's going on. And even just like the filmmaking style of it, one of the things I didn't didn't touch on before, watching Another State of Mind is hilarious to me or very interesting to me because they are using what looks like old tube video cameras. So the whole thing where the lights are streaking around, that was such a, a weird artifact of tube cameras. And then you see this from Penelope Spheris, and it looks like... You know, really nice 16 millimeter. It looks like it was very well lit. Um, so there's definitely a different style to just the, even how like DIY the one documentary looks over the other one. I think a, a lot of stuff that was filmed around this era was either for television and sometimes it was let's gawk at the freaks and or it was student film kind of stuff. It's, you know, somebody somebody was friends with somebody in band, somebody in a band was friends with somebody in film school. And they're like, Oh, I got this 16 millimeter from NYU. We can film your band doing whatever. But I don't, I don't think too many of the, uh, of the scenes necessarily had a lot of video or a lot of film shot at the time. I I'm willing to bet there's the odd performance here or there, or, you know, once again, I, my friends from the Rochester scene, especially a band called new math, who became Jet Black Berries, who were in the Return of Living Dead soundtrack for anybody who needs to have that frame of reference. They had some like local TV appearances in the early 80s. So there was the local morning host interviewing them as they're playing this dark psychedelic punk rock, you know, at like six o'clock in the morning or whatever. So a little bit of that kind of stuff exists, but not necessarily any big documentaries. And I know that around the time that the VHS of Another State of Mind came out, there was a lot of cable access shows from the early eighties that had been taped that would capture like black flag or whoever on tour, the misfits. That was another one that was, we saw a lot of uh, bootlegs of that stuff was, you know, being bootlegged and 
put out there for people to see, but I don't think there was anything necessarily like this as far as a tour documentary. Yeah, that was the big difference between this and Decline, where it was like so many of the the bands individually and then being cut together and stuff, as opposed to taking two bands, following them, and having this tour, no matter how uh, manufactured some of it was, you know, and then some of those weird, like, side moments, like the whole tutorial on <laughs> slam dancing. <laughs> Which is hilarious. But I swear I've seen that in other documentaries as well. Like they talk about mosh pits in Another State of Mind, but I swear I saw somebody uh, instruct how to pogo in another documentary right around this time. Well, the, the dancing was infamously the, the most scary and threatening part of going to a punk show. So I think by demystifying it, by talking about it, was probably a way for, well, it was probably a way to, to add some running time to the film, but it was also a way to to let people who didn't necessarily know or understand what was going on in on the fact that, hey, this isn't like fighting. This isn't people necessarily trying to hurt each other. I mean, there's a little bit of people doing that, but there's there's a method to the madness, I guess. And I think it's a demystification process. Today, we all kind of know what stage diving is. We all kind of understand what slam dancing is. But 1984, not so much. So, do you think one could accurately call this movie the anti-cocksuckers blues? I've never seen that, so. Well, that movie is banned, so anybody that has seen it is technically breaking the law, so I do not know anything about that film. Yeah, me neither. Though it really should be out on Criterion. Come on, Rolling Stones. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Anybody that, that, that thinks that their movie is not in circulation, it's somewhere, somehow, and doesn't embrace the, this was controversial and it's time, is, is leaving money on the table. The devils. I mean, I understand there's some things that have legal limbo around them and that just, just not enough interest to, to uh, facilitate the purchase of the rights or whatever. I get that. But anything that's held back because it's controversial or embarrassing, just let it go. Make your money before it hits public domain. I'm looking at a copy of it over ah, on my video shelf right now. Yes. <laughs> like anybody was shocked that the Rolling Stones, like what, they did drugs? I had no idea. You know, one of the best, I'll call it a punk documentaries I've ever seen that's not in circulation is the MC5, A True Testimonial. Because oh, yeah. It's, it's I amazing. saw that at TIFF years ago, yeah. and that was fantastic. It, it's not only about the music, but it's about the time and the place and what was going on in the world and all of those things. Maybe if you look on YouTube on certain days, you might be able to find it. Oh, you definitely will. Maybe if you go looking for it, enjoy. Yeah, that's kind of the hazard with, I think, a lot of movies that are music oriented is that it's always a rights issue. Like, I know, because like, yeah, I mentioned Erga Music War earlier, which is one of my favorite concert films ever. And at one point, Warner Archive finally released it on DVD, but it's still it's still missing one of the performances because there's no splotchiness abounds. So I mean, so it's kind of like, but that movie should have, yeah, it shouldn't be in Warner Archive. It should be a special edition because it's, I mean, it's historical at this point. You know, plus any movie that gives you Skayfish, Wall of Voodoo, and the Dead Kennedys is a gift, and the Cramps. My God, so good. While you guys were talking, I decided to look up somebody else who I figured was in a lot of documentaries. Thurston Moore, 76 credits. Holy shit. Yeah. I was just thinking about other punk rock documentaries and thinking about the the year punk rock broke and just how much I fucking hated him in that movie. 
I, I would actually like to put a personal request any future documentaries listen to this give us more Keith Morris give us also more JG Thurwell who's not he's not in that many documentaries at all but when he is he makes it count well I, I would like to see some more of the women that were around unfortunately a few, more than a few of them have passed away but you know give us some Patricia Morrison give us some Alice Bag give us all the Alice Bag yes no for any like punk rock historian enthusiasts like ourselves, you may already know about this, but her website, she has one of the most, I actually think this is better. This whole feature is better than any book written on punk that's out is she interviews different women that were in the scene. And it's everybody from roadies to musicians, to artists and photographers. And it's so comprehensive and such a fascinating, it gives you a real, like, I feel like it's the closest thing I've seen to like, I've, I felt like an authentic, real peek into how it was because she's just like letting these letting these different individuals talk and just you know say things from their perspective she's not putting her her, the way that she saw things on it like yeah so i think that's one of the coolest things i would love i'd love to see like equivalent to that for all of the musicians not just women um because man yeah alice bag's awesome (laughs) i remember really disliking the punk rock movie when i found it for like two dollars on vhs but looking at who's on here again i'm like maybe i should check it out i don't know so how much how much of that is the distance time wise from the events because i think that a lot of things i have seen the fact that you're talking to somebody right at the moment you get interesting perspectives you talk to somebody five years later and you you know it might be okay but when you talk about a decade two or three later that the people that are still around, you get more interesting perspectives because as those people have gotten older and had more life experience and challenges and successes, that that, that distance really gives them the, the ability to look from the outside and say, yeah, that was regretful or wow, that was amazing that we did that. So maybe going back to look at it from the perspective of you being older might also give a little more appreciation. Yeah, with that one, it just felt like a bunch of clips that they found and kind of strung together. But, I mean, that's me remembering it. Like I said, super cheap. Probably picked it up with like Sam Goody in the dollar bin or something. That's not the one where they talked about Bruce Springsteen for 15 minutes, is it? Don't think so, but I could be wrong. I think that was like the time-life history of rock and roll or something. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the film, um, because it was Dutch, and it came out in the late 70s called Cha-Cha. This film, and uh, I've actually I've written about it uh, in the past, is that uh, it stars Nina Hagen, uh, Herman Brood, who was kind of, I would say almost like a Springsteen equivalent to Europe. Like he's he's a little more interesting than that. No offense to anybody that's fans of the boss. But um, and Lena Lovich. And half of the film is sort of a narrative, like a, like a fictive narrative, but everybody's playing themselves. And, but even the fictive stuff's based in reality. And then other parts of it are just straight up performances. And it's a really cool kind of hybrid, especially because you've got, you know, Nina, who was, you know, her origins, well, her actual origins is she was like a child singer, but she was a punk, you know, that was her punk rock era. Lena, who's more like post-punk. And, uh, and then Herman, who's kind of, like more of a traditional rocker, but with kind of a cool edge. Cause obviously, I mean, I, I can't imagine Bruce Springsteen dating, you know, the American equivalent to Nina Hawkins. <laughs> so, but I highly recommend it. I don't, I don't know like how 
I got lucky because I had a friend of mine that lived in the Netherlands that sent me a copy <laughs> years and years and years ago. Because he's like, I want you to write about this film. And I'm like, oh, okay. But um, I think you can see it on YouTube, though. I mean, YouTube's become kind of the great bastion for these sort of orphaned movies. There is, a, I'm sure, a whole host of especially European, not British, but European continental films about music and punk rock that never really made it over here. I know that I saw a fiction piece called Shinara Kungen from Sweden, which translates as God Save the King, that was about punks in Sweden in the early 80s. And if you've seen We Are, we Are the Best, it's on the same wavelength, but it was really good. And I saw it at an international film festival like 15 years ago, but it, you know, never got a release here. You know, I think there's, there's a lot more out there to discover, and it's going to take somebody with some money – and the interest to, hey, let's release this on streaming or, you know, full-blown deluxe Blu-ray or whatever. Speaking of which, do you guys think that Another State of Mind deserves a full-blown, remastered, updated special feature releases release on Blu-ray? I definitely do, especially if they can find that version that uh... – they were talking about in the interview with the sound properly mixed because rewatching it again, I was just like, Oh yeah, this music's going right over that dialogue. I cannot hear that whatsoever. Yeah. It definitely needs the Blu-ray release. Yeah. Cause I noticed that too, there were like some audio issues and I think initially I just assumed, cause I mean, when it's, you know, when things are kind of low budget, I mean, audio is the hardest part of video. <laughs> Everybody who's worked in video, um, but yeah, well, and plus, I think I think any film, I mean, I'm a preservationist nature. I think any film that has, like, something interesting, I think everything should be preserved, even if it's terrible. But I think especially films like this that are historically important, but also still culturally relevant. I mean, we're, you know, we're all still living very much in the shadows and the misdeeds of the boomers, much like these kids are over here in the States. And, um, and to be honest, like, I mean, history is cyclical, like any, any message that is relevant to outcasts, I think 200 years ago has relevance now. And especially something that was just 30 or 40 years ago, even more so. So now I have a mental image of a bunch of people in 1819 in a basement somewhere screaming along to somebody beating on a drum and playing a fife. I mean, know, who? Who singing, singing, you know, <laughs> fuck, fuck Andrew Jackson or, you know. Yeah, you know, I'm down, down with, with that John song. Quincy Adams or whatever, you know. I could skank to that so easily. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, Jackson was not a good dude. No, he wasn't. He's terrible. <laughs> so speaking of presidents that weren't a good dude, did anybody else notice – Ian McKay, McKay's uh, high school identification card. What the who? Which president his high school is named after? Woodrow Wilson. Racist, misogynist, you know, journalist, citizenship stripping bastard that he was. Yep, I was like, wow, yeah, interesting. Especially when you when you think about some of Minor Threat's uh, songs about his experience in high school.
you know, there's some interesting minor threat stuff. I wouldn't say they're my favorite of, of his particular music. But to be honest, one of the things I like about this documentary as well is my personal taste has always run more to the West Coast punk scene. So social distortion, most definitely. I've mentioned Legal Weapon, TSOL, Heather mentioned the Gun Club. Bands like that have always spoke to me um, much more viscerally than, you know, bands from New York or, or London, to be honest. Well, yeah, they're a little bit more relatable, I suppose, because New York was so much its own scene in London as well. All right. Is there anything else we want to talk about? Another State of Mind. It's a great song. Everyone should go listen to it. <laughs> and it's a great movie. Everybody should go watch it. Oh, trust me. I'm going to be ending this episode with that song. You better believe it. Have you found any covers of that song? I'm surprised. I would be surprised if no one's covered it. I haven't looked. I'll have to take a look around. It took me quite a while to find Peter Stewart's band, so I, I was mostly looking for that. Well, I'm, I am not aware of uh, covers of that song. I do know of a cover of uh, The Creeps. That's the only one I know of from, from that era of social distortion. And I have to say, if people want to hear more good stuff, they definitely should check out the whole album because it's some fucking good stuff. All right. Thank you so much to my co-host, Eric and Heather, for being on the episode. Heather, what is happening in your world lately? Well, the latest installment of my music video history column, Picture Music, is live over at diabolikmagazine.com. This time around, I delve into director Peter Kerr and his work with musical innovators Cabaret Voltaire and their music video for their song, Don't Argue. And how about you, Eric? What's uh, keeping a good punk down these days? Most of what I've been doing is uh, I love that album compilation edition, which I am going to be wrapping up towards the end of this year. Um, I've been doing it for about five years, and it's kind of run its course. But there's going to be a couple more months of those. I will also pop up on the uh, Love That Album main episode. I think we're talking about August. So probably about the time you're hearing this, there would have been an episode with myself and Morris. Additionally, I was on the See Here podcast talking about uh, The Damned, Don't You Wish That We Were Dead documentary. I only made it for the last 15 minutes of that. Other than that, I've been on YouTube talking about books. That's my media presence out there in the digital world at this point. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.